protectors here. No lanterns. No Kryptonium. This world will fall. Like all the others. One misses the days when one's biggest concerns were exploding wind-up penguins. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Bark Tiberius Lemke, Chicago Blackhawks fan. This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, and you can help support the Batman Universe by heading over to patreon.com slash the Batman Universe. My name is Tim, and we are on episode 138, and joining me and being back after missing last week's episode is Dane. Dane, it's good to be back. Yes, it is. It's been a while, right? Yeah. Gone about what we missed. We're on our two-week schedule for episodes, so unfortunately, schedules didn't allow us to record one two weeks ago. So, But we're back, and there's plenty of stuff to talk about, that's for sure. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So so where should we begin, though? I mean, there's Comic-Con, there's... uh uh, War of the Planet of the Apes. There's uh, we had Spider-Man. We had D23 the week before Comic-Con. So. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, there's tons of stuff. But That, that uh, Star, Wars, uh, Star Wars world thing looks pretty cool. Yeah, dude, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, officially called Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. So I guess no more calling it Star Wars Land now. Oh, I see, I see. But, yeah, I mean... The stuff, the the little model they have of of it, the scale model showing what the land's actually going to be and the attractions they're going to have, more details on that. It sounds so 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 cool, <laughs> just to be immersive in a Star Wars universe. And then, I don't know if you heard about this, but in Disney World they're going to make a Star Wars resort and hotel. And oh wow! Like, I know when I saw <laughs> what they had planned for that in the concept art, it's like man, like can I just move there and live in that yeah. hotel? <laughs> <laughs> so so are they going to build? a new part of Disneyland or are they going to build it or take something down and re uh, rebuild it as the star Wars galaxy's edge? No, they're just expanding Disneyland. They just uh, got more areas. Just oh. right behind like uh, Fantasyland and uh, where Thunder Mountain is. You actually ride Thunder Mountain. You can see the construction of star Wars land. So it's kind of behind that area is where they're expanding. So it's going to be just, Making Disneyland bigger and better with oh, that with Galaxy. How much land is out there? I mean, I'm surprised they can just build wherever they want. It seems like. Well, they do uh, have to buy new land in areas in Anaheim. Sometimes they use it for the park, or sometimes it's just for parking and other stuff to accommodate Disneyland. So they're constantly getting new areas and purchasing yeah. land to make Disneyland and California Adventure, for that matter, bigger too. It's weird how they can do that and, uh, you know, have no problems doing it. <laughs> well, come and, on, it's uh, Disney. <laughs> and the, the Oakland A's have a hard time <laughs> either rebuilding the stadium or uh, moving someplace else. I'm sorry, Dane, but you really can't compare the <laughs> Oakland A's to Disney, Disney. and how much money they have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> but no, so yeah, we have that going on, but you mentioned War of the Planet of the Apes, which you know I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit if we were able to record our last episode. So, did you end up seeing it? 
not yet. I haven't okay. seen it yet, Tim. So just try to keep it not spoilery. <laughs> okay. So yeah. Planet of the Apes, I thought, was a or War for the Planet of the Apes was a great satisfying end to the trilogy, I thought. And it's still, you know, left it some areas open for they can do more if they wanted to, but I really loved how they're not totally connecting it to the classic Charlton Heston ones, but they're planting seeds in there, what, what's going to lead up to that. So they're not quite there yet, but, you know, they're slowly laying the foundation of, you know, where it's going to lead, and I loved how they did it. But I will say, I know this has been uh, some complaints towards it, and I was actually kind of surprised after I saw it, where uh, War is kind of a could be taken as a misleading title really because <laughs> it's a little slow it's not as action heavy as the, definitely the second one and with the title of war being in there you would expect you know a big war and action sequences to play take place in the movie which there is but i think it's maybe not as much as at least for me was i was expecting i don't think it took away i mean just from how good the story was but if you're going in looking for a lot of action kind of like how the second one has you may be disappointed so i would maybe temper expectations if you're going into it expecting like crazy action sequences because it doesn't have quite as much as it did in the second one. So a great ending to the trilogy though. And it's another solid story for Caesar and his, you know, character journey as he uh, first saw him in the uh, very first movie in rise of the planet of the Apes. It's such a great story they did with him and great performance by Andy Serkis. And after, you know, seeing it and, thinking how well great of a job Matt Reeves did of telling the story of Caesar. I mean, I just made me more excited for a story he's going to tell with Batman. And I really hope it's where he does multiple Batman movies because even though he didn't do the first one, he did two movies with the character of Caesar and he fit in nicely. It's just a great character arc. And I, if he has that chance to do that with Batman, we can be in for something special. So yeah, um, not only was it a satisfying ending for me for the H trilogy, but it just got me more excited for Matt Reeves take on the Batman. He's, I think he's going to be, giving us something special with the character if uh, Caesar's any indication. Well, if you ask me, he did two of the better ones. I mean, he did the two good ones, right? I mean, he... Mm-hmm. The, I, the, the first but, one was good, mm-hmm. but the second and the third one is... I mean, the, at least the second one that I've seen is... Uh, I think is better than the first one. I agree. I actually think the second one is still my favorite out of the three. Really? And, yeah, because yeah. it balances everything perfectly. I thought great acting stuff, great character moments, solid story. And like I said, with the third ones, there's definitely great character moments and a good story. But the, the, I think the action in the second one puts a little bit uh, over the third one as far as being my favorite. Cause it was just a great balance of all all three of those things. You see, now you make me want to go see it. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely should. Yeah. Yeah, so we had that, and then what was the other? Oh, yeah, you mentioned Spider Man. So yeah, Spider Man. Spider Man was really, really good too. I mean, I wouldn't say um, it's the ultimate Spider Man movie just yet, because there are. Because here's the thing with me and Spider Man: the first one is with uh, Tobey Maguire is probably my favorite because I just love Spider-Man's origin <laughs> stories so much. It's just one of the greatest, second best after Batman for superheroes. And I felt that movie really did a good job of telling that great origin story. And I knew going into this one, we weren't going to get it. And it was definitely the smart move because, you know, with the amazing Spider-Man and, you know, the first movies, we didn't need to see it a third time. So it was definitely a good decision not to have that. But there was a part of me when I was watching it, would, 
maybe which they would harken back to certain things like they didn't have to show it but maybe reference it which they didn't really do at all but at the same time it was still a great debut for spider-man in the marvel cinematic universe seeing him interact more with iron man and just having knowing those other heroes are there was just really really cool and tom holland he's the perfect spider-man and peter parker which you know for the other two with toby mcguire good peter parker didn't really necessarily the great spider-man andrew garfield great spider-man but didn't really like his peter parker but tom holland is good as both so he he did a great job in this movie and uh how the vulture too with michael keaton he was really good one of the better villains that we've seen in the spider-man movies and the marvel movies too so all, all around i thought it was really w- well done uh, i was definitely a happy spider-man fan after seeing it but the one thing i was concerned about not necessarily for this movie but for potential sequels they had a thing where, you know, as we saw in Captain America Civil War, Tony Stark gave him his new suit. And in this one, we see that there's a lot more bells and whistles to that Spider-Man suit, which was cool for this movie because uh, the whole point of it, as we see it, they showed in the trailers where uh, he does something where, you know, we shouldn't have in Tony Stark, where he puts people in danger. Tony Stark comes and takes the suit away. That's the, you know rely on himself to not rely on the, all the bells and whistles in the suit because there's an AI program that he talks to that offers help and solutions to certain problems. And that was the main thing in the movie. In this movie, I thought it worked good, but how this one ended, uh, Tony Stark offered him, okay, you did, you did a good job. You were going to, you can be one of the Avengers. You can live here with us. I got a even better suit for you waiting. And then Peter Parker rejects it. He says, no, I, you know, I got to stick to my neighborhood. I'm the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Look out for the little guy type thing. So I thought, that was cool. Yeah, he proved himself that he didn't need the suit. And when he was offered the chance to get an even better suit, he rejected it, which is something I think Spider-Man would do. But then at the very end, Tony Stark gives him his uh, original suit that he made for him back, which I was hoping Peter would make his own version of that without all the bells and whistles. So he wouldn't need to rely on that. So he pretty much has that suit again, which we'll see how they do in the sequel. I just don't want to see Spider-Man, you know, talking to an AI a lot and having that AI solve certain problems or scenarios where Spider-Man usually does on himself. So that's the only thing I'm concerned about. But other than that, it worked. All that stuff worked well in this movie though, and did a good job of saying, you know, Peter moved on from that and is able to do things on his own without relying on all all that stuff and Tony Stark's technology. So I just hope they don't use it as much in further movies. So other than that, Spider-Man Homecoming was really, really good. And I think pretty much what it should have been once Marvel got the, we were able to use Spider-Man in the MCU. So looking forward to seeing him in Infinity War and his eventual sequel that we know we're going to get. So I would say this year has been pretty darn good for movies. I pretty much liked and loved everything I've seen so far. And we still got more great ones to come <laughs> later in the fall and winter with Justice League and, of course, The Last Jedi. So if those movies could uh, live up to expectation, this might be the best year of movies ever because <laughs> I've really enjoyed everything I've seen so far. You know what I realized? They they, they can't get the suit right. Um, it always looks fake, like a CGI fake. You think so? Yeah. Like in in, in all of the movies, the Tobey Maguire ones, uh, the Andrew Garfield ones, and now this one. It just it's it, it's like you watch it and you're clearly it, you, you think to yourself, I'm clearly looking at a CGI uh, Spider Man. I, I didn't get that feeling where it pulled me out of it too much in this new one. Um, there might have been some shots, you know, of course, where you probably could tell it is CGI, but not to the effect where, oh, man, like, 
uh, I'm like pulled out of the experience because I think there definitely was that in the Tobey Maguire movies, especially when you watch them now, especially the second and third one. I thought some of those shots do not hold up at all. But for right now, I think this one pulls it off pretty good, at least for me. So the third, um, the third Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie is your favorite, right? Uh, <laughs> how did you know, Dane? <laughs> you know how much I love seeing uh, Peter Parker dance out in the streets, <laughs> go to a nightclub, start playing a piano and dancing because of the symbiote suit. <laughs> is uh, uh, is um, Gwen Stacy in that movie? I mean, I, yeah, I, I, she- I haven't seen it since the first time I saw it, so... Which, if you saw it in the theaters, that's 10 years ago now. <laughs> oh, wow, really? It's been yeah, 10 years. Yeah, 2007, yep. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, 10 years ago, I guess. <laughs> yeah, she was such an afterthought character. Like, why? <laughs> She's such an important character for yeah. Spider-Man. Why do you just use her as a throwaway character for one movie? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, but she, she's only in that one, right? Mm-hmm, yep. And that movie might single-handedly be the most disappointing movie i saw in a movie in an actual theater i was super excited for that yeah yeah that's just because be. they're adapting you know or look to adapt one of my favorite spider-man stories ever with the symbiote suit and bringing venom in i mean from the trailers where they showed him at the bell tower getting rid of the suit straight out of the comics like oh they're gonna knock this out of the park they're looking <laughs> like they're doing an amazing job and afterwards like oh no <laughs> yeah yeah it's definitely uh it's definitely top three um, I remember going, uh, being so excited to see that movie, and then um, I was actually excited to see uh, Sandman. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, I was uh, terribly let down by that because um, that was pretty much just a nothing character. I'm not sure why he was even in the movie to begin with. I think it's connected to that first one. I think it was. Oh, don't get me started on that yeah. too. Oh man, that was took away so much like i know how i told you how spider-man's origin story is one of my favorites right that took away so much of what makes it good like so if, even if spider-man did stop that guy there was a potential sandman was still holding uncle ben hostage and how he sh- accidentally shot him by the other robber bumping into him and accidentally pulled the trigger just takes away from the emotional impact of spider-man you know right realizing the guy he let go killed his uncle when oh now he just bumped into the other guy who had the gun like yeah. oh and not only that, the biggest letdown of that movie was Venom. Because, oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I get that Topher Grace at the time was, you know, he was on that 70s show and he was, you know, a big actor. But I didn't go to Spider-Man 3 to see Topher Grace. I went to mm-hmm. Spider-Man 3 to see Venom. And yep. I don't understand why they didn't do the full Venom thing from the, I mean, I don't understand why they just didn't do that instead of, you know, how they show his face. I know. Uh, it's like, I, you could probably count on one hand how many shots there are just Venom with his, you know, full alien face. Like yeah. like you said, most of the time it's Topher Grace's face on it. Like, no. I think it's like two to- uh, three times that you see him. Yeah. <laughs> At least good shots anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't think we talked about this at all since, you know, we don't talk too much about Spider-Man on here, but in <laughs> other characters, but uh, Tom Hardy's playing Venom in that solo movie. And while 
I scratch my head at them making a solo Venom movie that right now is not going to have ties to the new Spider-Man or Spider-Man at all, which, yeah. you know, Venom needs that. But I think Tom Hardy would make a really, really good Eddie Brock in Venom. So that has me, you know, a little I would be totally excited for a Venom movie if it was set in Spider-Man's universe. But since it's not, I'm a little you know, skeptical about it. But I am anxious to see Tom Hardy in the role because I think he'd be a really good Venom. That's another thing, too. Was it? Wasn't Eddie Brock like a, a weightlifter, like a big guy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right after, mm-hmm. yeah, once he got the suit. I mean, that's a, a shot of, yeah. one of the first shots in the comic to see him lifting those weights, and he has all those pictures of newspaper cutouts of Spider-Man on his wall. Yeah. So so why Topher Grace for that role? <laughs> I mean... I mean <laughs> the exact opposite of that. <laughs> I mean, I see Tom Hardy, right? I mean, we all seen him as Bane, right? Mm-hmm. And so he can definitely play that part, but Topher Grace, not not really. <laughs> yeah, I think saying that was miscast would be an understatement. And hopefully, uh, Mary Jane gets more of a role instead of just being, you know, the big or uh, just... yeah, yeah. Spider Man has to go rescue her every time, every movie. Yeah, when you go back and look at those movies, they like really overplayed that too much. I mean, that's the climax of every film. She gets captured. And, oh, right. Yeah. yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> gets... <laughs> then he has to go rescue her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every yeah. single one. Yeah. Even the second one. Yeah, I remember Doctor Octopus? Uh, they showed it in the trailer. <laughs> I remember they. They're in that cafe, and then he breaks in and captures oh, her. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And in the first one, Green Goblin. Yeah, he makes Spider-Man choose between her and those kids. And like that fairy oh, or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, and then he has to do that cool cinematic, like, holding both at the same time, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in Spider-Man 3, Eddie Brock kidnaps her while he was in, she was getting into a taxi cab, and he was the driver. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> then the taxi cab's hanging on a web. He's fun. <laughs> well, hopefully these movies uh, turn out better. I, and yeah, it seems like they're going in the right direction. Yeah, they are definitely on the right track. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> oh, and I forgot to mention, uh, while you were doing your uh, Spider-Man talk, or mm. review, uh, my dad, who is a... He likes Spider-Man. I wouldn't mm-hmm. consider him a fan, but I mean, he doesn't read the comics or anything, but he loves those... To- Toby McGuire. <laughs> Would you say it's his favorite superhero? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'd probably say it was uh, his favorite superhero, and he likes that first Andrew uh, Garfield one. Uh, he gave it two thumbs up. So, oh, cool. If that's saying anything, then it's a good movie. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah, maybe one of the best Marvel and credit scenes too. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it's. It's one that's not that doesn't set up a new like one of the new movies or a new character writing anything. It's just uh, without spoiling it, a great way to you know encompass all the other credit scenes that they had oh. <laughs> in their previous movie. That's pretty funny. Oh, so it's kind of like the um, the Avengers one where they're just eating sandwiches. Kind of, yeah, a little more in that vein, yeah. Oh, oh like, <laughs> it has nothing to do with anything. It's just there. Yeah, but once you see the Spider-Man movie, it, it all makes sense when you see it. Because, so. oh. <laughs> yeah, when I went into it, I heard like, early reviews saying, oh, this is one of the best end credit scenes, but not in the way you were expecting. So I was going into it expecting something good, but uh, knowing it's not going to be the, 
the normal end credit type tease, and it was definitely that. Unexpected, but still good. <laughs> uh, good, good. So when you do see it, Dane, make sure you watch it to the end, <laughs> after the end credits. <laughs> so yeah, I guess that's caught up on the movies I've seen and some of the news from D23 that's happened. We'll get to the comic stuff in a bit, Comic-Con stuff in a bit, but I guess we can first go into our Dark Knight Rises minute-by-minute minute commentary. So we are on the minute 87 getting close to that hour and a half mark as we were just talking about before we recorded and pretty soon we'll be under an hour <laughs> we're slowly getting there so yeah go ahead and get all the you know important media formats that are dead and gone vhs betamax laser disc hd dvds your projector blockbuster certificate gift cards or <laughs> membership cards <laughs> Uh, your Netflix physical media DVDs that you still get in the mail, all that good stuff and move it to the 87 minute mark. So Dane, are you ready? Sam. All right. I'll give the countdown. Three, two, one, go. John Blake looking at a bunch of barrels. Looking very confused. Yeah. (laughs) Straight to the map. And those detective instincts are kicking in. Who uses maps? (laughs) I guess the GCB don't, can't afford a GPS right now on their cars. Yeah. Well, he has a smartphone, right? I mean, yeah. This is 2012. And the mayor is back, but yeah. didn't have a big role in this one. No, he didn't. Just a little in the beginning and then to go to the football game and get blown up. <laughs> There's the stadium. The This is the Steelers stadium, isn't it? Yeah. Not not looking very full on the on the top there. <laughs> Must not be an important game early yeah. in the season. <laughs> or maybe they're out of the pennant race. <laughs> Some of the first thoughts or shots we saw in the trailer for it, the stadium, the kids singing, yeah. Bane walking up those stairs. The SWAT officers going. Yep. And with that, that's where we're gonna end this one. Oh no. <laughs> it was just getting interesting, Tim. Yeah. I know the suspense is going to kill us for the next two weeks. <laughs> That's what always happens, Tim. It always gets interesting, and then we got to wait two weeks because, I mean, besides that whole uh, John Blake going to Wayne Manor thing, every <laughs> single thing, every, every single commentary we've done, minute by minute commentary, has been like that, except uh, the John Blake at Wayne Manor. Yeah, it's been moving pretty at a fast pace now ever since that sequence. <laughs> and some of the stuff we yeah. thought might have dragged on a little longer hasn't really. That that probably is the longest sequence in the movie, I think. I think John the, Blake sitting on Wayne's couch. I think the lowest, I mean, the slowest uh, part is going to be when uh, Bruce tries to walk again. I think that's the next slow part. Yeah, well, we'll see. Yeah, but you're right. So far, nothing sent as long as uh, John Blake and <laughs> Bruce's living room. And might, that might not even be the longest scene in the movie, but it felt like it when you do a minute by minute commentary. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, we can go ahead and get into our future topic, which is pretty much going to be a recap of Comic Con, which of course was last week, and we got some news on all aspects of Batman and DC from comics, animated movies, live action movies. So. We're going to go over some of the bigger news that came out that got us excited. So uh, first off, the one that I think got revealed on Friday, or at least the first big one that caught my attention, is going to be kind of the comic front. We'll go with the comic stuff first. So, And it was that Arkham Asylum 2 
has been announced being written by Grant Morrison with art by Chris Burnham. And this one was a surprise. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those things where, you know, Arkham Asylum's regarded as a classic Batman graphic novel and, you know, a sequel. I never really heard too much talk about it. Was, if that was Grant, something Grant Morrison ever really wanted to do. But I think at the panel, he was saying how, um, if he ever did a sequel to that, it would be his personal jump the shark moment. So I guess it was never really in the cards. But then you said that, you know, I'm just going to embrace that ludicrous concept of doing a sequel and see if I can make it something really good. So <laughs> I guess he's going to try to prove himself wrong and make, you know, a good sequel to it. So this one will be different, though, as um, it's not going to be about Bruce. It's actually going to be set in that future timeline that he created with uh, Damien being Batman, which I guess would be, you know, might be the best way to go since you know even him himself saying how probably Arkham Asylum would be hard to make a sequel for that so let's do something different and have it be set with Damien and give him his own twisted version of that so should be interesting now and uh, I think I've said this before but if not it's one of my uh, I guess things of my Batman fandom I'm ashamed of or need to change where I haven't actually read Arkham Asylum graphic novel it seems like every Bat fan has a classic, iconic Batman story that they haven't read yet, and Arkham Asylum is mine, so I, I know I have to change that eventually, but Dane, I know you've read it, and so I'm curious to hear what you think about the news of uh, that story getting a sequel. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to work. Um, <laughs> I think it was... I think Arkham Asylum is just one of those one-off books that is probably never going to be done again because mm-hmm. uh, it's so unique. It's, um, yeah, it's just really, really unique. Um, the art style, the way it's written, the way that you never fully see Batman. Batman's kind of like a, a shadow in that book. You never, you never clearly see, um, a full image of, uh, Batman in the light. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how that's going to work, um. I'm, I'm hoping that'll work out, but I think I think uh, the original Arkham Asylum is just too unique, uh, art-wise, writing-wise. Uh, that that's just a never uh, uh, that's just a Batman I've never ever since then read before. He, he, it's so unique that I think he, it can only be done once, um, and yeah, like I said, it can't be replicated. Yeah, so it should be interesting to see if Grant Morrison can pull it off. I mean, like like I said, I think it is smart. He's going to try to make it as different as possible. I mean, even giving a different artist like Chris Burnham to do it. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. And I just got to mention, too, as I'm looking at the article of the story over at The Hollywood Reporter, they have an image of, you know, Batman Incorporated and looking at those characters. I miss Night Runner. That was such a cool design costume and a character. <laughs> I think, you know, <laughs> just gotten forgotten. <laughs> Well, it's like, it's it's a new, uh, or it's a new relaunched him. So, so, some things have to be left at the wayside. Apparently, so <laughs> at least bring that costume back. I mean, he, I think he'd be a perfect member for the Bat Team that's in Detective Comics right now. If they're gonna get new members, let's get Night Runner in there. Uh, I guess, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there are worse characters to choose from. I'll say that. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, the scene that image they had reminded me of it. I was like, yeah, I forgot about Night Runner. He was he was cool. <laughs> what uh, what happened to uh, Bluebird? Is that her name, Bluebird? 
Harper. Yeah, uh, Harper Rowe. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I think. Yeah, I know she definitely dropped that mantle and didn't want to be a superhero. I, and I, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of that, I know she had a role in Batman Eternal, but I think in the second one, Batman and Robin Eternal, I think her story kind of played out in that one. If I, because I didn't read that uh, year-long event, but I'm pretty sure she played a role in there, or maybe kind of had you know maybe a definitive or conclusion to her story. I know she's still around in some capacity, but she gave up that mantle of Bluebird. I know. Oh, I see. She should have been the um, the new Robin, is what I think. But never say never. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there will be another new Robin after Damien's time is up. <laughs> yeah. Even though Damien's been awesome in the Super Sons book, Superboy, the, the third team dynamic is so, so fun. Like, I hope he stays Robin for a while. <laughs> and did they, um, did they kind of forget about that Carrie Kelly thing? Oh, she uh, came into <laughs> kind, <laughs> kind of forgot about it. I think they definitely forgot about it. <laughs> How she came into I, the main storyline. <laughs> that I even forgot about until you mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was in the early uh, Batman and Robin comics. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what they did with that. I mean, I wonder if they just totally forgot about it, or they're not going to do that anymore. I don't know. I, you know, I think they should bring her back again. I mean, why not? She, she, I thought the small role she had in it was fine. I mean, we're not going to expect her to be Robin or anything, but the fact that she was a friend with Damien, I thought was pretty cool. So. Yeah, I wouldn't mind if they did, but it's just funny, like you said. It does seem like they forgot about her. <laughs> but, yeah, so moving on from other comic book news we got at Comic-Con, uh, Jeff Johns did shed a little more light and info on the Doomsday Clock event, mainly as far as uh, details when it's going to come out and the schedule of it. So it, the confirmed release date is going to be November 22nd, and the other thing revealed that it will be a 12-issue series, just like the original Watchmen was. Which I know he teased were, I think he said, larger than six, but fewer than 13 when they originally asked about how many issues. So 12 definitely fits into uh, that category. So um, it's definitely going to be a big event. But I just like how they're going about it. It's really going to be its own thing. And Jeff Johns, again, at the panel described it as a story for our time that brings the greatest heroes and villains from the DC universe together with the mysterious forces from the Watchmen universe. The story will center on Superman and Dr. Manhattan. And here's a part of it that I think is really exciting. Um, it's Doomsday Clock number one is actually going to start one year into the future of the DC universe. And by the time we get to the final issue, which they said it will be in December 2018, all the rest of the DC books will be caught up to that you know year gap which I think is awesome that they're doing it that way. So we don't have to worry about, and they said this before, but it's just nice that they're really, you know, going about this the way where there's not going to be any tie-ins. You don't have to get this book or that book to get any more information on this doomsday clock story. It really is going to be its own thing with it being a year apart from the rest of the DC continuity. And it's just a good thing where, you know, once we make it to the final issue and the rest of the titles had a chance to come up, It'll just be, you know, a nice seamless transition into this, what we're assumed is going to be a new big status quo in the DC universe once this whole event wraps up and then we don't have to worry about. But this book, you know, is taking place here, but Doomsday Clock's a year away. Like, what does it fit in the timeline? Nope, they got it all mapped out where everything will be caught up by the time that year is up. So I'm really excited for it. They also released a few teaser images from the book. Uh, we got... Oh, one of the, like the sign saying the end is here. We got one of a, 
you know, uh, looks like Dr. Manhattan's uh, logo that he has on his head with the circle with the two dots, one on the top and one in the center. Then we got an x-ray, what looks like, I don't know, that's like a bullet hole in the skull or a growth on there. But yeah, they're definitely teasing some stuff that's going to tie into Watchmen. So yeah, nothing too much as far as other details than that. But what they did reveal, just getting me more and more excited for it. Not for in the, this instance with what they revealed, not so much as far as the story, but just how they're going to go about with this event and how the release schedule is going to be at this thing makes perfect sense. So I'm looking forward to November. And with that, in the comic news front, that was pretty much the big stuff that caught my eye anyway. But moving on to the animation front, uh, we finally got our first look at Young Justice, Young Justice Outsiders, I should say. I guess it's still technically a season three, but the official title is Young Justice Outsiders. So um, they did announce that it will be debuting in 2018. They didn't give us a month, but it will be next year, of course, on that new uh, DC streaming uh, service that's going to be launching pretty soon. And they did release two new images of uh, showing some of the characters. And one of them is a lineup of the you know old team that we uh, got familiar with in the first and second seasons. We got uh, Artemis, Nightwing, Aqualad, and Superboy. But they're in much darker uniforms, not in their you know classic superhero outfits. They're almost like a special ops force type uh, outfits, which I'm curious to see how they're going to fit into this story. If they're still leading the team or they have their own team that's separate from the core group we're going to see in the new members so i don't know i'm curious to see how the senior members of the squad are going to fit into this so because just basing on their outfits looks like they're going into a darker place but the other image we got revealed of the team that we're going to get and some new characters and uh, looking at the image you got uh, static shock who's going to be in a kid flash robin wonder girl and the big one for me because they teased Stephanie Brown in season two, but just, you know, as Stephanie Brown, but now she's going to be full on spoiler in this season and her costume looks awesome. <laughs> I've said before when reviewing detective comics, how her costume is one of my favorites in all of comics and they're translating it very well in this, uh, in young justice, just going off of the screen shot. So I'm excited that she's going to be full on spoiler in this. Then they have uh, blue beetle who was, I think a great character in season two. And uh, they got, uh, a character called 13, uh, Arrowette, who is, uh, looks like taking up Man- uh, Artemis's role as kind of the Green Arrow type character, then Arsenal and Beast Boy, who are returning. So, yeah, the character designs look great. Um, they also said this uh, season's going to be a time jump as well. So, kind of like how the second season, when I, was, I believe, a five year jump uh, from season one to two. I might be mistaken in that, but there was a good amount of time that passed and looks like they're continuing that with uh, season three. So, and they did say that the season three should be about 26 episodes in total and they are already having ideas for season four and five. So hopefully everything works out with this new DC streaming service and young justice is a hit on there. We can get more seasons of this show because that would be so awesome after season two, everyone being disappointed <laughs> that that was it. And so fortunate that we're getting the third season but if we can get more than that that would just be icing on the cake so i'm definitely excited and looking forward to getting more info on young justice and the outsiders 
And then on the, still on the animation front, uh, they had the premiere of uh, Batman and Harley Quinn, the new animated movie coming out next month, which from the reviews I've heard, people are saying it's it's definitely a funny type of Batman movie. As I said, Harley is funny in it. It's, it has the feel of the animated series, which, of course, it's in the same animation style, but uh, maybe you should go into it not expecting a very serious movie. So they said there's a lot of laughs that go on to it. So definitely looking forward to checking that one out next month, but glad to hear a lot of people had fun with it. But the big news was that they announced their slate for 2018 in the anim- animated movies are going to get there. Now, we've heard before that Gotham uh, by Gaslight is being adapted to an animated movie, which uh, you know, is going to be cool to see. And they didn't give a confirmed release dates for all of these, but they did say that Gotham by Gaslight will be the first one up since uh, that is on the special features for Batman and Harley. So we'll probably get a sneak peek at that pretty soon. Then we're beginning a Suicide Squad movie called Suicide Squad Hell to Pay, which is going to be set in the DC Universe uh, original movies continuity like the Justice League ones are. And this will be the first one because uh, the Suicide Squad one that we got before was set in the Arkham Asylum Games universe. So this one will probably have different members from that, I'm guessing, but still classics that we're familiar with like Harley and Deadshot. I'm sure will be main members, but we'll have to wait a little bit before we get more information on who's actually on that roster and what the story is. But I think a school where it's going to be set in that continuity. But then the big one for me, and I'm really, really excited about, we're going to be getting a two-part movie adaption of the death of Superman. Yes, this story is going to be done right (laughs) because Superman Doomsday was the first one that came out when DC started their animated movie line in 2007. And I was very disappointed with it. I'm sure I've said that multiple times <laughs> over the course of uh, this podcast, which it was, it was a shame that it got off. Their animated movie line got off to a rocky start with this one, but of course had plenty of great ones after. But Superman Doomsday has remained probably my least favorite out of the bunch. And I'm just glad the story is getting another shot and being split into two parts like The Dark Knight Returns was. It's a very smart decision, and I can't wait. So the first one's going to be uh, Death of Superman. It'll come out uh, at the end of 2018, probably. Then 2019, we're going to get a Reign of the Superman, which, of course, is going to be, you know, after the death, after Superman dies, we get Cyborg Superman, the Eradicator, Steel, Superboy. So seeing that done in animation, I think it's going to be really cool. And even the Death of Superman, getting the chance to, you know, see the greater DC universe characters react to his death. Like if they do that funeral for a friend issues in this movie, I think would be really cool. Cause you know, the first Superman dooms, they had to condense that story so much that there wasn't any other DC universe characters in there. And to see a more faithful adaption of that. And this is, has me really excited. So I can't wait for that. And another thing I'm excited about, you know, how we were saying on a, this is a couple of podcasts ago about talking about, uh, some of the future DC animated movies we wanted to see and how they've done some of the 80s classic stories already and how we're hoping for them to get to some of the 90s stories. Well, this is the first step of that, I think. We're getting Superman or the death of Superman. Hopefully Nightfall will be next for Batman. If that gets a two-part movie or even three-part with Nightfall, Night's Quest, and Night's End, oh, man, <laughs> you probably won't be able to get sh- get me to shut up about that <laughs> if it gets announced on, a, on this podcast i'll just be raving and raving of how excited i am for that so hopefully this is the first step to getting more of those classic 90s stories into animated movies um but if this is you know if it's going to be a slow pace and superman doomsday and rain or Sup- the death of superman and rain of the superman is going to be you know the first of and only that for a little bit that'll be fine because you know this one is like such an iconic story and so to have it be 
made the way it was intended, you know, not so heavily condensed like Superman Doomsday was and just give it the adaption it deserves, I think is really exciting. So that was some of the animation stuff that we got at Comic-Con that uh, got me really excited. But of course, the big thing going into this Comic-Con was the live action movie panel, which Warner Brothers held on uh, their Saturday event. And we got another look at Justice League and those in attendance got their first look at Aquaman, which I was a little bummed they Warner Brothers didn't release because they released the first Wonder Woman footage they showed last year. I was kind of hoping they'd do the same with Aquaman, but uh, everyone who saw it said it looked awesome. It was a great little tease of showing an underwater sequence with just an armada of underwater craft by Ocean Master and seeing different Atlanteans writings like sharks and different sea creatures. And just, uh, just everyone said the scope and the scale of it having a great underwater superhero movie is pretty much what everyone said what they were hoping for in an Aquaman movie. So um, that had me excited just to hear everyone's positive reaction for that. But of course, the main draw was going to be a new trailer and the Justice League cast being there, uh, which you know it was cool to see the cast there except Henry Cavill. Uh, I guess he was either. Uh, scheduling conflicts or they still want to keep you know <laughs> Superman in the background till we see him in the movie but it was cool to see everyone up there and before this I think it was a day before where there was a new story came out about you know Warner Brothers kind of looking for a way to because Ben Affleck's not going to do any more Batman movies how they want to explain that in a movie and kind of phase their, his way out of it and so that was the question that <laughs> they actually asked Ben Affleck on the panel because, you know, this is going back and forth for a while now. For a while now. Is Ben Affleck going to end up doing the Batman? How long is he going to be Batman? So he just straight up and set out the panel, which I'm glad he did, to say, you know, I'm excited as I can be right now. I'm going to paraphrase here, of course. I don't have his exact quote in front of me, but he's saying he's very excited and just how awesome it is to have matt reeves be on board for batman he, and he said you know i'd just be i'd be an ape on the ground if he asked me to that's how much i want to work with matt reeves but let alone i'm actually batman so right now he's saying that he's excited for it maybe you know he's being reinvigorated with being in this universe maybe that he wasn't before when he was going through all this personal uh, stuff that he had to deal with so hopefully that's the case but at the same time it's like he didn't necessarily exactly say, yes, I'm going to be <laughs> Batman for this movie and for however amount or we'll wait and see. He just says how he's very excited. And we've heard him say before, <laughs> you know, on the Jimmy Kimmel. So I'm going to be directing the Batman. Then like a, two weeks later, he was no longer directing it. So it's kind of hard to right now anyway, just be 100 percent of confirmed feeling. Yeah, he's going to be Batman for the long haul. I don't have that feeling yet, but I'm definitely optimistic that you know he's going to do them at least the one movie with matt reeves and hopefully more if that goes well and justice league goes well so i'm more optimistic i would say than i was before but still not 100 percent convinced he's going to be the batman in the dceu for the long haul so i don't know if you were paying attention to a lot of that stuff dane before the panel actually started but uh, does this change your opinion at all as far as if you know how long he's going to be batman or is it still kind of the wait and see approach for you I think he's going to do Batman. I think he's going to do uh, Justice League 2. And then I think he's done. Mm. I I kind of get that feeling. Um, not sure what... I mean, how, how they're going to handle something like that. Um, are they just going to reboot the entire character? Um, is it going to be Dick Grayson? Mm. Yeah. yeah, they definitely have a lot of options. And yeah. What I think would be a cool scenario if Ben Affleck doesn't... you know want to continue uh, 
being Batman for a lot of these movies. It would, a cool way to do if Matt Reeves, you know, let's say he's going to do a trilogy and Bat, Ben Affleck doesn't want to commit to all that. What if they did something where, you know, Batman's been uh, or Bruce Wayne has been Batman for 20 years in this continuity. What if they went back like way early in the timeline, maybe like five years into his time as Batman to get a younger actor there and they tell like the Batman trilogy set in that timeline, but then Ben Affleck will be available to do, you know, like Justice League movies or cameos here and there. Kind of like what Robert Downey Jr. does right oh, now for Iron Man. yeah. He just shows up in little spots here and there. Yeah, that that makes sense. So have a completely different actor playing Bruce Wayne. Um, and then Ben Affleck can pick and choose what he wants to do. Mm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's actually a good idea. Yeah, like I say, I wouldn't mind that happening, but if, you know, they have to recast, then they have to recast if that's what it comes down to. I wouldn't try to necessarily explain it as far as, you know, I mean, if they want Dick Grayson to take over, that's fine. But if they're going to do a bat, like a new actor for Bruce Wayne, uh, let's just get a new actor in there and, you know, have everyone go with it. Because that's, (laughs) we've been through that plenty of times and it doesn't, while it could be disappointing, it doesn't affect, you know, the overall story that they're trying to tell it through as long as you got a good new actor to play it. But another interesting thing that come out of the DC panel was... Wait, hold on, Tim. One one second, Tim. I have to bring this up. Okay. What if they did uh, Tarkin to him? Just have, like, an actor stand in and then (laughs) CGI his face onto that actor. Uh, Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think WB is going to want to pay for that (laughs) for all those effect shots just to have someone look like Ben Affleck. Yeah. Yeah, And just get somebody that sounds like Ben Affleck to play, to do the, the, the you know what I, I, now that you brought that up, I saw a funny tweet by someone. I'm sorry. I can't remember who it was, but it was like, you know, we don't need Ben Affleck for Matt Reeves Batman movie. Just get Andy Serkis to do a motion capture performance. <laughs> <laughs> and then they could just digitally create Ben Affleck based off Andy Serkis. <laughs> All I know is that it, it would look like Ben Affleck. And it would be just like Ben Affleck if Andy yep. Serkis did. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. That option is there, but yeah. <laughs> I highly doubt they're going to want to spend the money for that. <laughs> but yeah, another option that people were thinking of was during the panel, they had a you know, they had like a little sizzle reel showing the titles of the movies that are going to be in development. And thankfully, Green Lantern Corps is still on there. That's the one I'm most concerned about. But they actually had uh, Batgirl on there. Justice League Dark was another one. But the most Wonder Woman 2, Suicide Squad 2 was on there. But the one that got my attention the most and a lot of people was that the Flash movie turned into Flashpoint. And once people saw that, it was like, oh, are they going to re? boot the dceu already is this their way to get a new batman in there uh, with this new continuity if they reset it with flashpoint and right now my opinion on that is i don't think so i don't think they're going to go that route and reboot the whole universe with flashpoint first off because i think you know it's still pretty new and if wonder woman's any indication they're starting to get on the right track as far as being a universe that the majority of people are going to be happy with because we know Man of Steel, BVS, and Suicide Squad is very split for those who love it and hate it. But with Wonder Woman, it got more consensus that everyone likes it. So if that's, you know, Justice League and other movies down the line continue that trend, they're not going to want to reboot that. And Flashpoint, I imagine, is pretty far down the line. But I just think I'm excited for Flashpoint because I want to see a great live action adaption of that story because I love Flashpoint. And if, you know, we get it where we get the Thomas Wayne Batman 
uh, in there. And boy, if we get the Martha Wayne Joker too, if we get a list, <laughs> that's going to be hard to pull off in one movie because uh, you know Flash has to take care of his own things without getting involved in the Thomas and Martha Wayne drama as Batman and Joker. But I would love to see little teases of that. But if, if we get the Thomas Wayne Batman, you know the that version of Superman who's been held by the government without you know seeing the yellow sun and powerless for a while, the war between Wonder Woman and Aquaman, it could be amazing to see on screen. And why maybe it could change little things here and there. Flash does you know reset the timeline in a way that most of the continuity stayed intact. Of course, it brought the new Fifty Two and all that those changes that went along with it. And DC is trying to you know do their best right now to put back that missing time frame and some of the stuff that was lost because of that. So flat by means of Dr. Manhattan. So it turns out flashpoint might not have even have a big an effect on the timeline that originally thought where it was Dr. Manhattan. So if you're just basing off the comic front, the movie does not have to reset the timeline at all. It could be what Barry fixes it in the end, which I would expect to happen. And then maybe there'll just be very little differences here and there. Kind of like how the TV show did, while I was disappointed with how they handled the Flashpoint world in the Flash season three premiere, it was—it shouldn't even been called Flashpoint. Honestly, it was just <laughs> such a watered down version of it. But the little minor effects it had on certain characters throughout the season, I thought worked really well. So if there's little stuff like that, certain things where, you know, Cisco's brother uh, in the old timeline was alive, but when Barry went to Flashpoint, his brother is dead now. Uh, Caitlin Snow didn't have the met a human power of killer frost before but because barry changed the timeline then she did so little changes like that that affect characters i think could be kind of interesting to see in future movies but not a big drastic reboot so i'm excited for flashpoint but i'm not expecting it to be like a reboot or a way to get a new bruce wayne or anything i'm just excited to see that story played out in live action yeah i don't think they're you know rebooting the entire film uh universe um I, I just think it's simply name one other f- flash story. And I, I, and I mean this with all due respect to any flash fan, right? Name one other story besides flashpoint in the last 10 years that was as big as flashpoint. No, you're 100% right. Yeah. There you go. I mean, y- y- you can name one for Batman, Superman, even Wonder Woman, but Flash, not, not so much, you know. So I, th- I think it's just because you know, DC fans know that Flashpoint was a big story, and they know maybe they even know Flash through Flashpoint, you know. Exactly. So yeah. I think that's just one of those situations. Yeah. No, I agree one hundred percent. And it was a very successful animated movie too. It did really well. And yeah, exactly. It's highly regarded as one of the best. Yeah, not only that, but like you said, the TV show also did a Flashpoint um, thing. And it's so, such a recognizable name now for comic fans and right, right. Flash fans. Like you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So I was excited for that just to see the story, like you said, but not you know thinking about reboots. So I just hope it's not you know, too far down the line, but you know, enough time where they'll be able to do it justice. So excited about that. But of course the main attraction was the new justice league trailer that we got at the, at the panel at comic con. And it was a big one, four minutes. So I'm curious to see how much of this, uh, what shots will be taken out. Cause we know they're not going to show a four minute trailer in a movie cause they'll probably chop it up a bit. So I'm curious to see how that plays out when it gets attached to the movies. But 
Uh, before I get into it, Dane, I want to hear your thoughts first because I know the previous trailers haven't gotten you too excited for Justice League just yet, but I'm curious to see if this one changed your mind at all about anything. Not really, Tim. I hate to be a downer. Darn it. Um, (laughs) I was hoping. The main thing I got from this uh, trailer is that I want to see more Wonder Woman. I want to see (laughs) Wonder Woman 2. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see Justice League. I want to see Wonder Woman 2 directed by Patty Jenkins, who for some reason hasn't really signed the deal on this. Yeah, we'll get into that later. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get into it later. But um, the second thing is... I still get the feeling that throughout the majority of the movie, and now this is just from that one four-minute trailer, that we're still clearly in a studio behind a green screen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it it it, it just it's it's kind of like the Spider-Man CGI where he's flying through uh, the air, right? It doesn't look good, and. I, that that's the same kind of feeling that I get from uh, this Justice League trailer. I mean, everything looks awesome. Everything looks cool. There's looks like there's going to be cool action sequences and stuff. Um, looks like they're reverting back to that Batman, Batman versus Superman look, where everything is super super dark uh, and grim. Mm. And um, I think that 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 works for them for for this movie um i know a lot of people didn't like that but i i certainly liked it um but yeah i still get that feeling that we are not in actual locations we're in a studio behind a green screen and that's going to be our movie right i mean especially i mean i i can't really blame them for the aquaman stuff because i mean how are you going to film that you know, in yeah. a real ocean or whatever, right? Atlantis a, is hard to get to yeah, for location. It, yeah. it, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it's the other scenes. You know where, the, like, the, the, the it looks like the Batmobile kind of is, like, chasing after something and then mm. uh, the sky is all red. Um, I still kind of feel that it's it's less Wonder Woman and more 300, where everything mm. is kind of painted. It's not an actual thing, you know? So, um, that was kind of my big main takeaway from all of this, that it's kind of going back to not so much the one Woman thing. It's going back to the Batman versus Superman thing where it's, it's all, it, the, the color scheme is completely different. And, you know, like I said, the, it's, it's on a set. It's not on an actual location. Um, but besides that, uh, the positives is uh, Jason Momoa looks really good. Uh, Cyborg looks really good. Uh, of course, Wonder Woman looks great. Uh, and Steppen- is that Steppenwolf, Tim? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't know which way they were going to go with it, but I, I love the Steppenwolf look and his giant yeah. whip thing. His favorite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, uh, negatives and positives, um, but I'm probably going to look at the positives that, you know, this is going to be a team movie, we're finally getting a team movie, and it looks pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) 
It'll, yeah, you can take the positive. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully it'll just translate for when the movie comes out. Yeah, I, I just hope that the entire movie doesn't look like Batman vs. Superman, where it's all dark all the time. You know, there's 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 no light. It's always overcast in Gotham or mm. <laughs> or Metropolis or wherever they're going in this movie. Uh, I I just hope that they kind of don't take that route. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a good portion of that, no doubt. <laughs> but yeah. We know we're getting some scenes on the mascara too, which they showed in the trailer, which like continues to look awesome. Like yeah, you said, we want Atlantis. So hopefully, there'll be a nice mix once we see the whole movie. It's kind of surprised that the uh, the Amazons sort of have something to do with. I mean, it, at least it looks like they have something to do with uh, Steppenwolf coming to Earth. So yeah, yeah. So for me. I love this trailer. <laughs> so it got me super pumped. And it's funny how you were mentioning it. I'll kind of piggyback on what you said as far as the look of it and having it have that Batman v Superman feel with the dark uh, settings and like skyline and all that. That was one of my complaints about the first uh, trailer, or technically the second, because you know we got that Comic Con tease last year, then we got a, our first trailer earlier in this year. So for that second one, I said how, you know, the action sequence had that Batman v Superman feel to it where, you know, it's the dark gray skies and all that. While I don't think it looks bad, like you said, it looks good and I liked it. I just want Justice League to have its own unique visual style and feel to it. And this trailer, while there are a few shots of those still here, this one gave me that unique different feel to it. Really? With, yeah, with those, yeah. you were talking about the red skies. Yeah. The, I love the visual styles on that. And yeah, that moment with uh aquaman while it was an awesome shot of him falling down the sky on top of a parademon yeah and he crashed into that building that was awesome but once it comes out yeah you can definitely tell it's a green screen and he's on a set right there hopefully they'll patch that up and make it look better on the <laughs> final movie but i just love that red sky because it reminds me of the dc animated universe which especially for superman the animated series and the new batman adventures Bruce Tim and his crew used that red sky all the time. And it had that feel of that Superman episode, Apocalypse Now, where Darkseid invades Earth. And you had that red sky in there. And now we're getting it in an actual live-action movie. And right now, that's pretty distinctive for Justice League. It's the only one that has that. So I love that look of it going into it with this trailer. It had that unique feel I was hoping and wishing for when I saw that very first trailer. So that got me excited. But yeah, yeah. I, but, I'm sorry. Can I mean, yeah, I was just going to say that um, I I just don't yeah, I just don't like that whole it's dark, it's overcast, it's it's, you know mm. it's um, it's going to rain pretty soon sort of look. Um, <laughs> well, it, it's got to rain in these type of, <laughs> you know uh, climactic acted sequences it's always got to be rained somewhere <laughs> yeah but I, 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 I know what you I, mean though it is kind of a cliche I feel like uh, you know Wonder Woman and Flash uh, Flash especially since um, we have something to compare it to uh, the TV show it just it, it it just doesn't feel right for the characters you know um, that this whole dark thing and um I mean, it's not only the DC movies, it's also the Marvel movies, which are so too vibrant for me. It's um, <laughs> they, It seems like they can't get it, DC and Marvel can't get it right. It <laughs> they can't the, find a balance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like the, the Avengers and the Captain Americas and you know all these movies, they look extremely bright 
and vibrant and neon almost at, while the DC <laughs> well, I don't think movie, they, they got to the Joe Schumacher level. No, no, not that far, not that far. But and, and the DC movies have these dark sort of rainy, overcast mm. palettes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was funny, just thinking about it now. <laughs> no, no, you you bring up a fair point. Uh, I mean, the DC movies, we haven't had too many of them, but they did have... It's kind of because it reminded me of the DC animated universe, especially the Dark Side Apocalypse Invasion episodes, and it, just, it was like I was seeing that in live action, which got me really excited. But I just thought this is well put together trailer. The way it started with, uh, you know, it was almost like it was a trailer for a Wonder Woman sequel where she's stopping that uh, robbery from happening. Happening, and there were some great shots and action moments of her there. I like that moment where that guy tries hitting her in the head with gun, and it, like has no effect. She just turns around <laughs> and punches him afterwards. So it was cool to get, you know, I think it was smart too to start the stress with Wonder Woman, given how big of a hit her movie has been. Let's get everyone excited about seeing Wonder Woman first in this Justice League trailer. So I thought that was a really cool way to start it off. And then, yeah, like you were talking about. Uh, with the mascara or first actually i love seeing gordon flash that back signal up and then we took that awesome shot of batman sitting yeah, on that yeah, car that's, that's kind of another thing too i felt that uh jim gordon uh gordon mm-hmm. she he uh, stuck out like a sore thumb <laughs> it, it just it it, it kind of was a surprise and not not in a good way, you know. Really, because I think yeah, it might be some that it's kind of supposed to have that effect because you know he's just used to him with Batman, but now he's getting you know Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Flash. These other more colorful characters are here, so I think they actually might play into that as far as being like a weird scenario where maybe he does stick out like that. So, <laughs> but yeah, at the same time too, it's, it's he looks like Gordon. How Gordon would look like to me, and of course, I guess. Seeing a normal person like that would stand out amongst those characters who are, you know, dressed like that and who are almost godlike. I guess. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, it's just to me, it didn't really fit. And I'm not sure how Jim Gordon is going to fit into this movie. But. I, if I'm going to be honest. I think that's probably going to be his one scene. I'm not expecting too much from him. Maybe one other one. But I think that's going to be his biggest scene. Just you know, Batman has to needs him for something, or he needs Batman for something. And he yeah, but you don't want him to be like Alfred from Batman vs Superman, where he was just kind of there for two or three scenes. Yeah, for a Justice League movie, I think that's okay. But for yeah. the solo Batman movie, I hope that's not the case. No, I no, no. Yeah, so. definitely not. Definitely not. But as for the Justice League, it's like I don't know if you should introduce a character if he's just gonna. You know, attend to their needs. You know. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, because yeah. you know how B- Batman and Gordon always go to each other when right. <laughs> they they need help from someone. And this could. I'm just curious to see who calls who. Well, he does see the flash the bat signal, so maybe it is Gordon calling Batman. So we'll see. So, so what if he's just at the end, and um, you know they meet on the rooftop and. Gordon has a Joker playing card that he shows Batman <laughs> at the end of it. <laughs> talk about rehashing. Yeah. <laughs> that would have zero effect. First of all, since we already seen the Joker in this universe, <laughs> and given how we, it was done in, perfectly in Batman Begins, so they better yeah. not do that. Yeah. <laughs> 
But yeah, I did like how too we did to see the mascara and, and how they do have the mother box because it was revealed before in some of like, set reports or even synopsis of the film. I believe it's going to start with like a prologue of that the Atlanteans and uh, the Amazons have mother boxes, and there's a third one, and that might be the one. I'm sure that's the one uh, uh, Cyborg's father had, and he used to turn him into Cyborg to save his life. So it seems like they were scattered, or, or three of them maybe were scattered across the earth. And probably the one that the Amazons have, Steppenwolf is using, uh, following the mother box as a boom tube to transport into Earth and to invade. So I thought that was a cool sequence. You know, just a cool way to tie the universe together. We saw the Amazons and Wonder Woman and were awesome in that. And to have, you know, them be the race that brings or at least is involved with uh, Steppenwolf coming, I thought was a good idea since we're already familiar with them. And we haven't quite yet been introduced to the Atlanteans with Aquaman. But I got to say... Might be the biggest thing that got me excited in this trailer wasn't any shot, but a line of dialogue. And I even had to do a double take. It was when Steppenwolf was talking and he talked about how the planet has no protectors. And he goes, no lanterns. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what did he say? (laughs) Did he say what I thought he said? I actually went back and just to make sure that he said that. And sure enough, he said no lanterns. And then after that, he said no Kryptonians as far as, you know, Earth having any protectors. But just the fact that little green lantern easter egg is references being put in this movie got me super super excited you know i'm a green lantern fanboy and getting any little tease of what's to come with the green lantern in this universe got me super pumped so i was just glad they threw us green lantern fans a little bone <laughs> giving that uh the green lantern is not going to play a big role if any in this movie i'm still kind of holding out hope maybe one will show up in an end credit scene or at the end or something but I'm uh, not too quite sure about that, but as long as they get a reference that, you know, other beings in this universe know about them, I thought it was really cool. So I just love that line of dialogue that they're recognizing that the Green Lanterns exist here. I thought that was really, really cool. Well, Tim, I hate to brush, brush your bubble, but I think he was ref- uh, referring to just regular lanterns, right? <laughs> because we don't use those anymore unless, unless we're going camping. <laughs> and I didn't see anybody camping there. So I think you just meant regular lanterns, Tim. Oh, <laughs> uh, Dave, how can you bring me down like that? <laughs> it all makes sense now. You're right. Who uses those lanterns, those lights anymore? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, unless you're going camping or whatever, you're not going to use those lanterns, right? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yep. We got our iPhones now. We got flashlights. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> started ready to bring down my geek out moment Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's funny how that line got me and other fans excited and was looking for other green lantern clues in this trailer which i think that was the only one because there's another shot of either the batwing or the big ship the fox which is gonna carry the justice league there was one shot of it flying in the sky and there was like a little green light that was at the bottom of it. And I've heard people, oh, is that a Green Lantern's ring or the light shining through it somewhere? Like, no, I think it's just part of the light lighting system on the ship, not necessarily a Green Lantern. <laughs> so while it was cool, we got that reference and hopefully there'll be more. I think that's the only one we're, we got in this trailer. But this trailer had a lot of great dialogue. I thought one by Steppenwolf that got me, the Green Lantern fan in me excited. Then there's just cool references to Batman's history. I love that line Alfred has when he's just talking to Bruce, how you know, one misses the days where all we had to worry about were exploding penguins. I mean, we know, like we said, Batman's been around for 20 years. So the little lines of dialogues and little quips we get from Alfred talking about his past and like some of the other villains 
we, we got some of that in Batman v Superman, which is cool, and I'm glad that's continuing for here on Justice League. Got a little penguin uh, nod, so that was pretty fun. And then just the dialogue between the team, I'm really liking. Flash, I think it's going to be one of the one of my favorite characters probably in this. This is everything he's saying so far in these trailers, getting getting a laugh out of me. I love that line too, where after Wonder Woman saying, you know, we all got to stick and fight together. Uh, Flash just goes up to Batman. He's all like, it's awesome that you guys all are ready to fight and everything, but I've never done this before. I usually just push people and run away. <laughs> so just showing how I like how he's going to be kind of the him and Cyborg anyway, you know, like the inexperienced heroes here. This is going to be the first main battle that they're going to have to uh, go through and, you know, just seeing, showing their inexperience. But yet at the same time, it will be cool to see Batman, Wonder Woman and Aquaman kind of mentoring them and get them through this and see them grow as heroes is going to be cool to see. So I liked all that. A lot of cool action sequences, the quick shots that we're getting that one where it looks like they're going into that underground, like this underground area. And it almost looks like they're looking up a well or like this uh, towering uh, building where, you know, they can, you can go underground through it, but it looks like there's going to be a big action sequence that takes place there. As we see wonder woman flash, uh, fight and Steppenwolf gets involved. Batman goes into looks like the Batmobile and shoots parademons, as we saw in the other trailer. So it looks like there's a big action sequence coming in there. But we got more shots of that. I love that moment where it's like Steppenwolf is tearing up the Batmobile that Batman is in, and he's fighting Wonder Woman. And these laser blasts are going around, and this Wonder Woman has a lot of great shots in this, and just showing how awesome she is. Where there's a blast just goes right by her head, and she just casually moves her head like it was nothing, and just ready to attack. So and then where um, Flash, there's like Wonder Woman's trying to grab the sword and it looks like Flash is trying to help her get it. It was like in a slow-mo shot that looked really cool. And then looks like we might get Batman in the warehouse sequence from Batman v Superman Part 2 because there's only a few shots of it in here, but Batman taking on some parademons and like in this interior. It was almost like a warehouse, but not exactly the same as the one we saw in BVS. But if you can see him go all out on these parademons, maybe even just do more than he did in that warehouse sequence in BVS, it's going to be awesome. So, yeah, again, a lot of cool shots in this trailer from both an action standpoint and just uh, epic looking shots of the team together and some great dialogue and DC created universe Easter egg teases. This trailer had it all for me. It got me super, super excited for it. And then we get to the end. And the little teaser for, you know, the one Justice League member we haven't seen at all yet. Or Alfred has his Jurassic Park moment where he's working on a car and he looks at his glass of, of wine and he sees it start shaking and rumbling. And then, you know, we don't see him, but he looks at someone and he just says, uh, if I remember right, he's all, he knew you'd come. Let's just hope it's not too late. And there's actually been some more speculation than i thought it would as far as who's alfred's talking to i mean i think it's pretty obvious <laughs> that it's superman we know he's the one justice league member who's in the movie but they haven't shown yet and we know who is coming back so look i've heard people going back to the green lantern think oh maybe it's hal jordan since they got that reference that uh, like no i, I want to don't think they're doing that. We know Superman's his reveal is going to be the big moment in this movie. So I think it was a cool little tease. And now that in this second trailer or third trailer, technically that they haven't shown us Superman, I'm kind of wanting them not to show him at all now until we're in the actual movie theater. Kind of like how the force awakens did with Luke, but I expect Superman to do <laughs> more than what Luke did in that movie. But just that surprise to when we do actually see him and have it be a great moment for Superman in his return, because uh, quite a few people amongst who've seen the movie, like Jeff Johns and Gal Gadot, are saying how, you know, Superman fans are not going to be disappointed with him in this movie. And 
I remember even Jeff Johns replied to some, a website, uh, you know, like top great or top five Superman moments in the DCEU so far. And he's all get ready to reevaluate that list. So there's some big stuff coming with Superman. At least they're teasing it that way. And if they can hold off on showing us anything like they have now, I think it's just going to make for a better movie experience when we see it for the first time. And Superman's back and as good as we're expecting him to be and that lives up to those uh, teases and high duck Jeff Johns that others are talking about him. I think it could be a really cool moment. So I thought it was a nice way to end this trailer with a little tease of Superman, but not yet showing him. And let's just, let's just say that from the movie. So yeah, that was the big thing for Comic-Con as far as DC stuff goes. It was a, I thought a, a great trailer, even though it was four minutes, which was awesome. Like I said at the beginning, we'll see how much makes it into an actual movie theater trailer. But it got me super excited for it. I know um, a lot of fans are excited about after seeing it. So I actually put a poll out not too long that day after the trailer debuted to see you know, what fans are thinking about it. And in a landslide, <laughs> I would say a lot of people are really looking forward to this because with 85 votes, uh, 5% said they didn't like it. 8% said it was just okay. 9% said it was pretty darn good, but a whopping 78% thought it was absolutely amazing. So glad the majority of uh, fans out there, at least who responded to the poll I put up on our uh, Twitter page, uh, thought the trailer looked absolutely amazing. And hopefully that means the movie will be just as amazing too. But had to go along with that. Uh, a few people responded to some of the uh, the trailer and what they liked about Comic-Con. Um, Mark Lemke, of course, our good pal, at Dur underscore Lemke said, uh, he actually put himself, referring to himself in third person, Mark Lemke selects fantastic option for the poll results. So I'm glad to hear that Mark thinks it looks fantastic. And then Jim Bob Squarepants at Vintage GT said uh, what his favorite things are at Comic-Con. He says, Justice League has got me salivating. I'm so excited. And Thor Ragnarok also looks superb which is awesome that we're getting both movies in November because that Thor trailer was pretty cool also <laughs> with him and Hulk interacting that ending shock of that ending shot of Hulk flying into that big fire monsters mouth. <laughs> That's going to be a fun movie too. So I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, justice league is the movie for November for me and this trailer just getting me so, so hyped for it. So yeah, that was about probably gonna be it for our comic con recap. Uh, some of the stuff that got us excited uh, as far as announcements goes, for me, anyway, a lot of things to look forward to with uh, the animated stuff with Young Justice, uh, the animated movie slate with Superman, the death of Superman, and then on the comic front with Doomsday Clock. Then uh, we'll see about Arkham Asylum, too, when that comes out. But yeah, just a lot of cool stuff to get excited about just for DC and not to mention some of the Marvel stuff that got revealed there. So just a lot, a lot of cool <laughs> stuff to look forward to for comic book fans. So, um, I guess before we wrap up, Dane, was there anything besides the DC stuff that got you excited for Comic-Con? Um, probably the Thor trailer. I really, really... Yeah, wasn't it cool? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really well done. And I know they showed, or again, at D23 and at Comic-Con, they showed a little Infinity War teaser, yeah. which I was a little bummed they didn't release uh, for everyone else because there were some rumblings while at D23, oh, they're saving it for Comic-Con to release it to everyone then, but they still did it, and there may have been a bootleg version that got out there <laughs> to <laughs> see, but uh, it. I just want to see that in you know the best way possible and see how awesome it looks, because everyone's saying it looks incredible, so yeah, a lot of stuff to look forward to. I even like the 
far as the Marvel stuff goes on the Netflix front, the trailer for the Defenders, which comes out next month in August, I thought that looked really cool. So, yeah, just a lot of stuff to look forward to, which, you know, is becoming a cliche, but it's just a great time to be a geek and a fan of this stuff. <laughs> We're getting spoiled. <laughs> I'm sure we might have different opinions as far as liking all this stuff as uh, compared to other things, but you know, it's just good that we're getting all this content and we can have, you know, pick and choose because there's so much of it. If one, one of them doesn't meet our expectations, we don't like, there is another one right down the corner, which hopefully will meet expectations on like, I just love the idea that there's just a lot of the stuff out there for us geeks to consume. So yeah, it's just awesome. But with that, that wraps up our featured topic. But uh, before we get into some uh, listener feedback, we got a few new stories that came out outside of Comic-Con. And the first one is that Wonder Woman 2 officially has a release date, and it's going to be on December 2019. I believe the exact date was December 13th. Yeah. So it's official. Wonder Woman's coming in just a little over two years, which is, you know, exciting that we don't have to wait too long and not a full three-year gap. But, Dane, like you alluded to, the one thing missing in this announcement, that Patty Jenkins is officially signed on as a director. I mean, it just said in the Hollywood Reporter article that, you know, they're still in negotiations with her. And I'm just thinking, what's the freaking hold up? <laughs> Why should it be taking this long for her to get signed on for the second one? You think Warner Brothers would be doing everything they can to keep her. I mean, she did what no one else, no other director has done in the DC extended universe so far is getting a well-received, critically acclaimed movie with both, you know, critics and fans and having it financially successful. It's it has the triple crown <laughs> as far as the movies goes getting like so well received financially uh doing good and yeah getting you know critics love it so why haven't they brought her back yet i just really hope they don't blow this warner brothers i'm talking about and you know scoff at a few extra dollars and not having her come back for another woman wonder woman movie it would be a huge mistake if they don't yeah definitely i mean i like you said, I don't know what the holdup is. Um, I know Patty Jenkins also has like this new TV show coming out. Um, yeah, mm. maybe that has something to do with it, with the timing and the scheduling and stuff. But I'm just hoping they can get her back and get her on the uh, the new Wonder Woman movie. Yeah, so it just seems like I don't want to say they have to, but. I think they have to. Yeah. <laughs> it would just be a shame to let her go after, really, like I said, all the great stuff she did was wonderful. And now, you know, she got a movie that it pretty much everyone enjoyed. So hopefully they can work out some deal for it and where both sides are happy and they can, you know, get, get it done by that release date they put out. So <laughs> we'll see. But I do like how now in starting next year with Aquaman, we're going to get two DC movies in the, in winter, in December, taking the Star Wars <laughs> gap that's being left since those are going to be moving to May with starting with the Han Solo movies. So I would think DC movies are a nice replacement if we're not going to get Star Wars in December. At least we get some other big uh, tentpole comic book movies. So looks like uh, big DC movies might take in that, DC, or that December slot now until maybe Star Wars goes back, but we'll see. Maybe they'll alternate two-year Star Wars, two-year DC movies. I'd be good with that. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you'd be very, very happy about that, Tim. Oh, yes. <laughs> See, what I'm most excited about this uh, go around, we get The Last Jedi in December, and hopefully Han Solo sticks, you know, you know, with the change of directors and everything, uh, causing maybe a little more shooting they have to do. We'll see. But 
getting two Star Wars movies six months apart from each other when Han Solo comes out may of next year that's gonna be awesome i mean knowing that we're getting another star wars movie six months after the last jedi that's still hard to fathom for me so i hope it maintains its release date because we were supposed to have that with the last jedi and rogue one last jedi was originally supposed to come out in may of this year but it got pushed back to that december release date so yeah if we can get a star wars movie six months apart from each other that would be amazing. <laughs> and I hope yeah. I don't get spoiled with that because <laughs> I don't know oh, how so often the, that's going to happen. The Han Solo movie comes out next year. Yep. May 2018. Hmm. Like I said, unless it gets delayed or anything by, you know, Ron Howard taking over if they needed to shoot more stuff because they didn't like what they had from Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Yeah. What happened there? Was it just a, a uh, disagreement? They just didn't like Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy, and Lawrence Kasdan. They weren't happy with you know the dailies that were coming in and the directorial style they were showing of why they were doing it. Some of the reports saying they were doing a lot of telling their actors to do more improvisation stuff or not sticking to the script, and the way they were filming, you know, wasn't what Lucasfilm wanted to do. So, yeah, this turned out to be you know that uh, line that everyone says when they. Uh, split apart with creative differences it really yeah. looks like that was the case for this one which you know it's a shame that it happened you would think they'd all been on the same page before they the camera started rolling and hired them to direct but i guess you really don't know until they actually start doing the job and then the work starts showing up and it's not what you were expecting or wanted so in the end i i think it's for the best i think it shows that lucasfilm really cares about getting this right because they were so far into production on the movie yeah. they only had three weeks left of shooting with phil lord and chris miller so the fact that they fired him that late in the game and you know wanting to make sure this gets it right to me it gives me more confidence in it that you know they'll be able to with ryan howard uh manning the ship now getting everything you know back to back to normal and getting this movie finished and maybe adding certain things or redoing certain shots uh, i think it's in good hands so of course we'll have to wait and see once the movie comes out but it didn't deter me as far as getting worried about it or anything. I think they're going to be able to uh, fix what needed to be fixed and give us a cool story with Han Solo. Yeah, I'm just wondering how much is he going to change? Is he going to make it his own movie or is he going to just add to what those yeah. uh, two other two directors did? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be fully, you know, Ron, like you'll, it's Ron Howard's movie. I think it's yeah. mainly going to be finishing it, but still at the same time, making sure it all comes together nicely. I see. Well, yeah. R- Ron How- Howard is a good director. So. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And he's doing an awesome job sharing some shots with us on social media. So <laughs> <laughs> no Star Wars director has shared set photos like he has, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Did you see the one? Like, I think it was the first one he posted. It's just a picture of the ground. Yeah, like water bottle. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's kind of fun, you know, playing with the fans a little bit. But then slowly, like, his photos get better and better. Soon you're seeing, like, wardrobes of costumes. Then you're seeing actual creatures and actors on set. Like, he's the first one to show us Donald Glover as Lando in, a, like, a monitor shot. You see him in the Falcon. Like, oh, there's Lando. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, he's definitely stepped up his game as far as set photos from the water bottles on the floor. <laughs> but our last bit of news uh, that we got um batman the telltale series season two it's right around the corner it's going to come out uh in two weeks i think about on august 8th so i mean we knew we were probably going to get a second season but the fact 
that it's in August. And for me, anyway, it was sooner than expected, which is awesome because you know how much we love that first season of the Telltale series. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely be getting this one right away when it comes out. And it's called uh, The Enemy Within, is I think the official name of this season. So, and it looks like from the trailer, Riddler's going to play a big role as the villain in this game, which should be awesome. So, I can't wait. I'm actually playing the new Guardians of the Galaxy one right now. That one's been really good. Oh, yeah? Yeah. The, oh. There's only have two episodes out right now, but the second one was really good, delving into rocket raccoons history and how you know he was experimented on and the relationship he had with another you know creature who was being experimented on it was really really good so telltale just keeps knocking him out of the park with these games yeah because i watch i mean i i finally finished the um uh what is it uh the the, the walking dead uh, okay game and i don't know the ending was a little uh anticlimactic it was really? just yeah it, it it wasn't what I expected. Um, I thought it, it, it felt really rushed. So uh, that's disappointing because I know yeah. a lot of, the, especially the first season when everyone talked about the ending for that one, how it was really good. Yeah, yeah, but unfortunately, yeah, they kind of I don't know. It just the um, the whole season kind of wasn't that great. Uh, the first and the second seasons were really good. So. Um, hopefully the the uh, Batman um, enemy within is is really good because the first season was exactly what I wanted. Yep. Yeah, so I can't wait for it. It'll be right around the corner. So hopefully, yeah, by the time we record our next episode, we should hopefully we both be able to play it and give our reviews on that one because those are fun <laughs> talking yeah. about the game and then comparing our decisions. So it'll be fun <laughs> just to do that again. But with that, let's pretty much the big new stuff we got for this episode so we can go ahead and go over to our emails with uh jordan and as always jordan begins his email by saying hey tim and dane and alex we don't want to forget alex even though he's taking a break from the emails so got to include them in this which is always cool yeah he says it's hard to believe that rebirth oh i should mention too that this is an email that jordan sent for episode we didn't get to record two weeks ago so He's not going to have too much to say on the Comic-Con and all the stuff we've gotten since then. He's going to save that for the next episode. So just in uh, case <laughs> we're wondering why some of the stuff is kind of far back and not quite up to date with everything I've gone around with Comic-Con. So uh, he says, it's hard to believe that Rebirth launched over a year ago now. Time flies when you're having fun. And the Rebirth comics have certainly provided me with a lot of fun. I doubt this was come as a shock to you guys, but my favorite Rebirth title has, without a shadow of a doubt, been Batman. Tom King just writes Batman very much in line with my sensibilities when it comes to the character. He explores the psychology of Batman quite a bit and gracefully walks the line of making Batman vulnerable and powerful at the same time. He has provided us with a brilliant new character in Gotham Girl, as well as told two of the best Bane stories in recent memory with I Am Suicide and I Am Bane. The highlight of his entire run for me has been Rooftops, and I feel that King proved that he is right up there with Jeff Lowe when it comes to writers who best convey the relationship between Batman and Catwoman. That is a a fictional relationship that I hold dear, and the story King told about them in Rooftops may very well be my favorite Bat-Cat story of all time. King finally had the couple take the next step when Batman proposed to Catwoman in every epilogue as a prelude. He gave us a quirky but very emotional team up with Swamp Thing, and now he is delving into Batman's early days with the War of Jokes and Riddles. Keep up the great work, Tom. My second favorite Rebirth title has definitely been Green Arrow. Benjamin Percy has brought Green Arrow and Black Canary back together, 
and he has really put Green Arrow through the ringer as he tries to defend um, Seattle, or now Star City, and actually the entire country in the latest art. Also, one of Ferreira's art on the book is a sight to behold. The other Reaver titles that I'm caught up with are Justice League, Batgirl, and Teen Titans. Justice League has been a mixed bag for me. I was happier with Brian Hitch's run than a lot of people, and I actually think his final two issues before he temporarily left was his best. Now we've gone three issues in a row from three different creative teams, all of which have been good but not great. So Justice League has been decent, but there's room for improvement in Rebirth's second year. Batgirl has been pretty good. Hope Larson's first book, or first took Babs out of Burnside into Asia, which was fun, and then she started introducing some Batman villains into the book like Poison Ivy, Magpie, and the Penguin, which I enjoyed as well. Also, Chris Wild Goose's art on that book is Bat-tastic, although he didn't start until issue 7. Good stuff there. I particularly enjoyed the most recent issue, which was a spooky detective story. As for Teen Titans, I jumped on the title late when the first trade came out after how much I was loving Percy's work over on Green Arrow, but now I'm caught up. While I think Percy's Green Arrow run has been better than his Teen Titans run, I have liked Teen Titans as well. Percy writes Robin really well, and the first arc involving the League of Assassins was awesome. Now he's focusing on Aqualad, with the break in between for the Lazarus contract, and I'm digging that as well. Anyway, thumbs up all the way around for Rebirth. I'm so excited for Batman Mask of the Phantasm getting a Blu-ray release. It's tied with The Dark Knight Rises as my all-time favorite Batman movie, one being my anim- or one being my animated favorite and the other my live-action favorite. And I can't wait to see it remastered quality. I've been hoping for this for a long time. I will throw in the caveat that I'm assuming that the remaster will be available on digital HD as well. I've gone almost entirely digital with my movies, and my assumption is that I'll be able to watch the remastered edition via that means. So it's that I'm excited for it specifically, not the Blu-ray. So I will say, too, since Jordan's mentioned in the email, I just watched the Blu-ray of Mask of the Phantasm last night. And, boy, I got to say, I was just waiting for this movie to hit Blu-ray for so long, like Jordan said. I used at the tweet out saying, probably not since the Star Wars Complete Collection have I wanted a movie on Blu-ray as bad as Batman Mask of the Phantasm. And I watched it, and... Boy, for the most of the movie, it looks absolutely beautiful. The best it's ever done. It was, it looked awesome. But sad to say, it wasn't a perfect transfer. There were some shots where it kind of looked a little out of focus or had like that soft quality feel to it. It just didn't look up to par with some of the rest rest of the remastered transfer, which was disappointing because most of, most of the movie looked great, but just a shame that not all of it did, which was noticeable. And the other disappointing thing about it, too, was there was the sound wasn't 5.1 surround i think it was just 2.0 which you know is most blu-rays are 5.1 so it's a shame that uh, that the sound didn't get a remaster as well and they had actually had a panel for this at comic-con and where i've heard people saying how most of the budget went towards the remastered aspect for it and nothing else was provided for you know any new special feature features or documentaries so they must have not got a really huge budget for this because while most of the movie looked awesome, the fact that not all of it looked awesome and didn't get, there's still some shots out there that don't look right. It's disappointing. So, and you know, Warner Brothers is a big studio. They can put out a little money to get this classic movie <laughs> remastered the way it should be. So while for the most part, I'm really happy with it. It never looked as good as it does now on Blu-ray. It is disappointing that not every shot is like that. So, but it's definitely worth the purchase. And I just got to say, watching it again last night, it 
that movie's a masterpiece. It's just so, so good. And the story on it, the action, the acting by all the voice actors, it's just incredible. You know, you can hear me gush about Master of the Phantasm on plenty of old episodes of our podcast, but just watching it again, it's just always a reminder, a good reminder of how great that movie is. So, yeah, I think you're definitely going to enjoy it, Jordan. I haven't heard if it is available on like, digital media as well. I'm not sure if it's just an exclusively a Blu-ray release. Hopefully not, because think they're kind of limiting the market that way I mean, if they could just stick it to buy digitally i'm sure a lot of people will download it that way as well so hopefully that's the case but yeah once you see it, i think you'll be really happy with it but he continues saying matt reads comments about his batman film being noir driven detective version of batman that will get in batman's head excite me as well well we have seen batman do detective work in most if not all of his live action movies none of them have really centered around the mystery I'd love to see a Batman film that really makes the detective work the focal point and centers around a mystery. The Court of Owls comes to mind for me as well as in terms of a story like that, as do Batman The Long Halloween and Batman Hush. Count me in on that front. I'm definitely with you on that. I've been banging the Court of Owls drum for, <laughs> for them as villains in a Batman movie for a long time now. But Jordan says, or continues, as far as the movie that gets in Batman's head, that's something that I think we've seen a lot of in live action. But I'm always down for more of it. The psychology of Batman fascinates me. And I'd love to see Reeves explore that. Speaking of Reeves and his Batman movie, something else besides the quote got me even more pumped for it. I finally saw Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I'd already seen Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which I really liked, but that wasn't directed by Reeves. I think Reeves topped it with Dawn, though, which I absolutely loved. I think the fact that I cried watching a movie about talking apes really says a lot. It's an incredible, powerful, emotional, intense film. And I could totally see Reeves making something really special for Batman as well. Uh, you hit the nail on the head there, Jordan, with Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And let us know if you saw War of the Planet of the Apes and see if you liked how the conclusion of that story uh, ended. And if you think that's going to even get you more excited for Matt Reeves' take on Batman as it did for me after I saw it. So hopefully you did. Be curious to hear your thoughts on it. And continue saying, I'm glad to hear you're continuing to enjoy the Teen Titans animated series, Tim. Deep Six is a fun episode that gives a cool introduction to Aqualad. Did you notice who wrote it? None other than Marv Wolfman. As for Mask, that episode is just phenomenal. The way Robin is portrayed in that series is so, so good. I love how he creates the persona of Red X and the way the other members of the team react to that. There are two standalone episodes that immediately follow Mask, but Mask is pretty much the lead into the two-part season finale involving Slade, which I eagerly anticipate your thoughts on. Uh, I'm sorry, Jordan, but uh, <laughs> the Teen Titans uh, watch for me has slowed down a little bit. Unfortunately, those still are the last two episodes I saw of it. Hopefully by the next episode, I promise I will finish season one because I at least want to get that finished and hopefully continue on to the next ones. But by the time you write in your next email, I'll have my thoughts on for uh, those final four episodes and season one as a whole. So I got to make sure I do that. But he continues saying, as for the progress of my own binge watch, let me just say that Smallville continues to amaze me. Why did I not watch this show sooner? I'm a little less than halfway through season five now, and I continue to love pretty much every episode. Spoilers, at the time of the writing of my last email, I was on season three. That season ended strongly. One of my favorite Lex scenes of the series came towards the end of that season in the episode Memoria. It's the episode where Lex was uncovering repressed memories of his childhood and realized that he didn't kill his younger brother, Julian. My favorite scene is when Lex reveals that to Lionel 
they come to the realization of how different things could have been between them had Lionel known the truth. Yes, you would have loved me, Lex says. Chills. It makes you wonder if having a relationship with his father would have changed how Lex turned out to be. It's clear that Lex wishes he had a loving family like the Kents. As usual, Michael Rosenbaum kills it in this scene. More on Rosenbaum and his unbelievable acting later. Also in season three, I didn't realize that Christopher Reeve was in a second episode of Smallville before he passed away. It was great to see him one more time. Season four starts with Clark sort of having amnesia and only remembering his Cal-El identity. Now, this is one of the weird things about the show to me. I don't understand why Cal-El is a separate personality for him. It's like there's two different people living inside his body. I'll admit that I'm well-read in Superman comics as I am in Batman comics. So maybe I just didn't know that this is a thing. But in all of the versions of Superman I've seen or read, Kal-El is just Clark Kent's birth name and nothing else. Also, I don't get why Jor-El seems to make so many terrible decisions for Clark. He's always putting everyone in danger. That's not at all what I'm used to when it comes to Jor-El. In any case, both of those things had made for some cool storytelling. So I have no problem with them either. But both are sort of unexpected for me, I guess you could say. There were several new characters introduced in Season 4, most of whom I liked. Erica Durant is awesome as Lois Lane. I do wish she introduced a little bit. She was introduced a little bit later, but uh, since I want more time with Clark and Lana before the person we all expect Clark to end up with comes into the picture. But as far as she hasn't gotten in the way of them, so it's fine. The truth is, if I had it my way, Clark would just end up with Lana in this version of Superman's story. I mean, there's precedent for him being with someone other than Lois, just like at the New 52. But yeah, Durant does a great job as Lois. She has she has a snarky, quippy, stubborn, and smart, all things you expect from Lois. It was also great to meet uh, Bart Allen in Season 4. I think he's the first other DC hero that Clark has met so far, and he is awesome. It was cool he name-checked all the other Flashes, too. I liked how he and Clark were at odds for most of the episode, but they bonded by the end of it. Mr. Mixies Pidlick also got an episode in Season 4 that was lots of fun. I always love that character, so there are new characters that I so those are the new characters that I like. Can you guess the one new character that I wasn't fond of? Hint, he's played by the same actor who voiced Red Hood and Batman under the Red Hood. I was not a fan of Jason Teague. Isn't that weird that Jensen Eccles played Jason Todd and Jason Teague? He's yet another guy who was getting in the way of Clark and Lana being together. First Lana was with Whitney, then he was she was with Adam, and then Jason. I mean, come on. At least that's over with. But it was hard to watch, and two of them together in season four. Another reason I didn't like Jason is that he replaced Pete as a series regular, and I really like Pete. Now on to season five. I'm getting the feeling that this might wind up being my favorite season of the show so far. I was a little bit nervous because I thought I was going to miss the characters not being in high school anymore. I thought that was a great aspect of the show. I was sort of wondering about that before I started watching Smallville. I wasn't sure whether they were going to spend 10 years in high school. <laughs> Sometimes it felt that way, I gotta say. <laughs> anyway, that worry was put to bed very quickly in Season 5, as it started with the bang. First off, we got the Fortress of Solitude now, and it looks great. Also, Clark knows now that Chloe knows his secret. When Pete left, Clark didn't have anyone to confide in regarding his powers other than his parents anymore. I'd like him to have someone else to help out to help him with that, and now he has that with Chloe. Speaking of Chloe, I like... I like her now a lot more than I used to. She used to get on my nerves because she was getting in the way of Clark and Lana, and she always had, was always being nosy and getting into other people's, namely Clark's, business. She doesn't do either of those things now, so I've really changed my tune on her as a character. You could probably guess what my favorite thing is about Season 5, though. 
Clark, Clark and Lon are finally back together with tons of exclamation points after that, <laughs> I should add. Uh, they've had more great romantic scenes together as a couple already this season. Like I said, I'm not even that far into it. Then they did all for the previous season combined. I love them so much, and I'm so happy that they are so happy. Oh, and as far as Lana's kryptonite necklace, she gave it to Whitney when he left for the Marines. Then she got it back when he went MIA, and when Tina Greer used the Wait, who's, week. Who, who's Whitney? Remember her boyfriend in the first uh, season? Oh. The football, like, typical jock high school guy? Yeah. Okay. Oh. So, let's see. She got it back when he went MIA, and when Tina Greer used the necklace to weaken Clark when she returned in season two, Clark's ship was able to remove the kryptonite from it to save him. So, I guess there's our answer, Dane. <laughs> I guess her necklace is just not kryptonite anymore. I kind of forgot about that. It's not kryptonite. Apparently, the ship was able to remove it. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I forgot about that. <laughs> well, I don't blame you. <laughs> because another highlight of season five has been Lex's development. He's finally making the turn to villainy that we all expected and is so exciting. It's also kind of heartbreaking. One of the things I love so much about this version of Lex is how we get to see the goodness with him at the beginning of the series. There were many times in the early seasons where I genuinely liked the guy. Like, do you remember that scene early on when he told Clark that their friendship was going to be the stuff of legends? Yep, <laughs> that was one of the standout lines of those early seasons, especially since uh, we all knew how legendary it was going to be, but in different contexts. <laughs> Jordan says, I tear up just thinking about that scene. Even then, I obviously knew that wasn't going to wind up being the case, but now seeing Lex and Clark start to come to blows, it makes thinking back on that line that much more powerful. In the season four episode where Lex's good and bad personalities got split into two different bodies, we got a taste of what Rosabomb had in store as evil Lex. Man, that's another episode I forgot about. <laughs> I don't remember that happening. It says, now we're uh, starting to see that for real in season five, and it's kind of frightening. I've also now seen the episode where Arthur Curry was introduced in season five. I really like this version of him. I thought they did a good job showing some of the powers he has underwater. I thought it was cool how he was fighting to protect aquatic life. I did find it a little annoying how he called everyone bro, <laughs> but that's a minor nitpick. Just like they do with Clark a lot of the time and did with Bart, I liked how even though Arthur didn't wear a costume, he wore clothes that were the colors of his tradu- traditional costume, which Lois gave him a hard time for. Anyway, Smallville continues to be super. See what I did there? And I can't wait to see what else is uh, to come on the show. We talked a little bit on Twitter about Smallville, Tim, and both you and Travis Haynes have been hyping up the 100th episode. I'm almost there, and I'm very excited. So, yeah, given how this email was sent a while ago, I think Jordan actually might be almost done with the series, (laughs) looking at his tweet. The last one he said, or at least the last one I saw, I think he was on season eight with Doomsday. So I'll be curious to see what you think of those in-between seasons, because as I know how much you love the Clark and Lana relationship, Jordan. I believe in season six, that was the one I was curious to hear your reaction on because um, I'm going to say it now, assuming you've seen season six. So, But if you haven't, and I'm jumping the gun <laughs> as far as how far you are, spoiler alert, but the, where Lana and Lex actually get engaged and pretty much almost got married. <laughs> yeah, there's an episode where Clark goes to their wedding. I think they actually did get married, if I remember right. So I'm really anxious to hear what your feelings were <laughs> when you saw that happen. So. <laughs> Look forward to hearing your thoughts on there. And if you finish the series by the time we get our next episode, what you thought of the series finale and how it ended. But I agree. Season five was really good. And 
like I said and teased on Twitter, that 100th episode was one of the better ones. Season four was definitely one of the weaker ones, but you did bring out the highlights of it with uh, the introduction of Lois. Erica Durant, I think, is still the best live-action Lois we've gotten so far. And that episode with Bart and the teases of Flash was the best episode of that season, I thought. But yeah, uh, Jensen Echols is that character, Jason, and that stuff with his mother and the three witches and all that was just a lame season-long plot point, which was really amounted to nothing. Just, there's uh, there's witches in Smallville? Yeah, like Lana, Chloe, and Lois got inhabited by the spirits of some witches or yeah. something like that. It was, and You'd think that would have been it, but it kind of lingered on with uh, Jensen Echols' characters, and it was not good. <laughs> so, yeah, season four is one of the weaker ones, in my opinion, besides those episodes you mentioned. So, yeah, looking forward to see what you think of Smallville when you finished up. You're mowing through them. <laughs> You're pretty much, like I said, done with the series, and I could barely finish season one of Teen Titans. <laughs> That's how slow I am. And not because I'm not enjoying it, just because I'm busy with other stuff, unfortunately. But I'll get there. But he continues saying, Tim, I couldn't agree with you more regarding the Batman Elmer Fudd special. It was phenomenal. I wasn't sure what to expect from it, even after reading the preview pages. But I picked it up anyway, because at this point, I'll read anything King writes involving Batman. I trusted that King would deliver, and boy did he. This issue blew me away. I'll keep my thoughts non-spoilery like you did. But it is just an amazing Batman detective story. I love the way King made all the Looney Tunes characters humans while they still retain their beloved characteristics. It was cool to see Silver St. Cloud in a Batman comic for what I think is the first time in a very long time. There were some comedic moments, but mostly it was a very emotional and compelling story that painted Elmer Fudd as a tragic character. It had some cool action beats and it delivered a fascinating mystery with a handful of exciting twists and turns. Also, the backup story is more in the style of traditional Looney Tunes cartoons, but it was a lot of fun. Batman slash Elmer Fudd special number one is right up there for me with some of King's best issues on the main Batman title, and I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Totally agree with you there, Jordan. It's going to be up there once we do our you know yearly review of the comics. <laughs> That's going to be up there maybe for one of the best issues of 2017. But on to Batman 26. I really like this issue. Spoilers, there were some great moments with both the Joker and the Riddler. The most notable one, in my opinion, being when the Joker arranges Carmine Falcone's mother's teeth out on his desk. That is just such an impactful way of showing that Joker has absolutely no limits when it comes to doing terrible things. I liked how this issue showed us Poison Ivy and the Penguin joining sides in the war, but I was expecting to see more of the other characters join as well. Batman 26 delved more into Batman's psychology than Batman 25 did, as we see how crushed Batman was by all the casualty of this war. And who does he confide in about this? Selina. I hope that us seeing Bruce and Selina in present day at the end of each issue continues to be a trend throughout this arc. I also like that Batman was wearing an old bat suit. That's what I was expecting to be the case, since this arc is set in the past. I'm not the biggest fan of the Rebirth costume. I think it's decent, but it's not nearly as good as his new 52 costume was. So it's nice to see him wearing a different costume here. While I did really like his, this issue, I thought it was a little better than Batman 25. I didn't quite love it. I think I've come to expect absolute excellence from King, and these last few issues have been as good as some of his other stuff has been, in my opinion. Or haven't been as good, I should say. If most other writers wrote them, I'd likely be doing nothing but singing their praises, but I hold King to a very high standard. He wrote my favorite single comic book issue ever in Batman 14, after all. This arc could improve, though. I wasn't over the moon about the first two issues of King's first arc, I Am Gotham, 
But then it took off, and by the end, I was saying it was one of my favorite Batman arcs ever. So that could be the case with the War of Jokes and Riddles as well. Only time will tell. Yeah, since I didn't review, uh, or to me to have our last episode, I didn't get a chance to review Batman number 286. But yeah, I wasn't a big fan of this one either. This arc of the War and Jokes and Riddles has been a little disappointing so far. It just seems like it's taking forever to get going. Like, there's still a lot of setup. I want to see more of the Joker and Riddler at war with each other. When we see some of their members, like you mentioned, joining their sides, but not enough of it. It's like they're already there, and we're just seeing small glimpses of actual the war happening. So still waiting for it to get going, but it did pick up a little bit in the next one, which we'll get into in our comic reviews. But I know what you mean, Jordan. So one last thing before I finish up with a couple of questions. Dane, if Kilowog, if Kilowog's heard you call him a hippopotamus and say that he should be the villain of the Green Lantern Corps, he'd call you a poozer. Tim will explain. Alrighty, on to some questions. <laughs> yeah, actually, I would, I would, I would hope to be called a poozer by Kilowog. It's like a badge of honor. <laughs> While he does call that to everyone, he even calls some of the greatest Green Lanterns poozers. So I wouldn't take it as an insult. Oh, I see. <laughs> But his first question is, now that we've had some time to digest Wonder Woman, how would you rank the four DCEU movies to date? This is really hard for me, as I love three out of the four. But here it goes. Number four is Suicide Squad. I really wish the tone would have been more in line with what was shown in the initial Comic-Con teaser that we got. But overall, it was still pretty good. Every moment involving Holly Quinn or the Joker is phenomenal. Number three, Wonder Woman. It's a wonderful origin film for Diana Prince. The entire cast, but especially the two stars, deliver outstanding performances. It's master- it masterfully balances being a superhero movie, a war drama, and a romantic, and a rom- romance, while also being humorous at times. Number two, Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. It does an excellent job bringing the Trinity together in live action for the first time. It does a great job adapting parts of the Dark Knight Returns to the big screen, and has the best live action Batman fight scene to date. And it gives us an awesome introduction to Batfleck. Number one, Man of Steel. This is the one of the most beautiful and inspirational films I've ever seen. It is my favorite live-action DC film not starring Batman. It provides an excellent origin for Superman, and Michael Shannon's General Zod gives one of the most underrated live-action DC villain performances. Superman's first flight is one of my favorite scenes in any movie, and Hans Zimmer's score is a masterpiece. Well, for me, my ranking would be probably number four season... I go back and forth with Batman versus Superman Suicide Squad, but I'm going to put Batman v Superman as number four because while I probably like it most than most uh, fans do, <laughs> well, see, I shouldn't say most because I know it's pretty split. You got your lovers and you got your haters, and I'm kind of in the middle. <laughs> but at the same time, too, it was disappointing for me. It did not live up to my expectations that I had for it going in. And all the moments that you liked about it, Jordan, I agree with that Batman fight sequences is awesome. The Trinity sequence is great. Yeah. So there are great stuff to it, but there's still a lot of stuff you have to get through in the rest of the movie (laughs) for those payoffs and some of it unnecessary too, which, you know, brings it down. So that's number four. And number three, I'm going to go with suicide squad. Suicide squad. I thought was a better put together movie than BVS, even though BVS probably has parts that I enjoy more, but Overall, I, I like how Suicide Squad was put together a little more than uh, Batman v Superman. And then number two, I'm going to go with Wonder Woman. And then number one, it's still Man of Steel. As much as I loved Wonder Woman, I, Man of Steel, I think, is so underrated. Yeah, I know it's kind of in the same category as being split. 
between you know people who love it and hate it like batman v superman is but i personally don't think it deserves that i at first it is kind of shocking or maybe not shocking but it's it's definitely a unique film that's put together the way it is but once you see it multiple times i think it works and i just appreciate it more and more when i see it so man of steel is still the number one dceu movie and dane i have a feeling i know what your number one is but (laughs) (laughs) where do all the other ones rig um four is batman versus superman uh three is suicide squad just because of harley quinn uh two man of steel and number one is what tim Gotta be Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Batman vs. Superman is definitely the weakest out of all of the um, DC movies currently. Yeah, I would agree, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> but the second question is, in a similar fashion to our favorite DC EU movies, he goes, how would you rank the four films in the DC animated universe? This one is a little less tough for me, but it's similar in that I love three out of the four, and even the fourth I like pretty well. So here it goes. Number four, Batman Mystery of the Batwoman. It doesn't have the emotional impact of the other three films, but there's some good stuff in it. I like that it uses the new Batman Adventures animation style and features the Tim Drake Robin. The new version of Batman they create is pretty cool, and the surprise twist about her, I should say the new version of Batwoman they create is pretty cool. And the surprise twist they make about the try. Uh, <laughs> getting tongue-tied here the new version of batwoman they create is pretty cool and the surprise twist about her makes it even better there i see i do know how to read <laughs> number three he goes batman and mr freeze sub-zero heart of ice gets all the love when it comes to mr freeze in the dcau and deservedly so but in my opinion this is almost as good as a mr freeze story as that it oh, really tugs up uh-oh <laughs> Uh, let's finish his points okay, first. Okay. Uh, it really tugs at the heartstrings when it comes to him and Nora and paints them in a very sympathetic light. Uh, I also love that we get to see a lot of Dick and Barbara's relationship in this one. Sub-Zero, yeah, it's. I think it's a good story in the Mr. Freeze uh, saga, so to say, in the DCAU. It's a good continuation of that, but not quite on the level as uh, Heart of Ice. It's actually might be one of my... Out of the four stories we got of Mr. Freeze in the DCAU, Sub-Zero is probably my least favorite because, as we know, Heart of Ice is just a classic. I love the even more tragic turn that um, uh, Cold Comfort takes in the new Batman adventures after you know Sub-Zero ends on a hopeful note that uh, Nora was able to be cured by Wayne Enterprises, but Mr. Freeze didn't go to see her, and she eventually remarried, and that caused them to go more on the deep end. But then the Batman Beyond episode Meltdown is just, you know, a great episode, but a tragic end to Mr. Freeze and his story, which I think, you know, makes that my second favorite after Heart of Ice. Then there was Deep Freeze, the second episode in Batman the Animated Series with Mr. Freeze that takes place before Sub-Zero. So that one was pretty fun, but kind of the least impactful out of the, I guess it's five, (laughs) five stories that we got in Mr. Freeze. So, but yeah, Sub Zero fits nicely in there, though. Just Heart of Ice is just hard, really hard to reach. <laughs> but number two is Batman Return of the Joker, or Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. I talked the last email about how good a final Batman versus Joker confrontation, the one in the Dark Knight Returns, is, but I consider this one in the flashback in Return of the Joker to be the best version of the two adversaries' final showdown. The film features that I consider to be Mark Hamill's very best performance in the role of the Joker. And the movie also really exemplifies what I love about Terry McGinnis, or Terry McGinnis' Batman. And number one, Batman Mask of the Phantasm. 
I sound like a broken record at this point singing this movie's praises, but frankly, I consider it the single greatest Batman story ever told in any medium. Return of the Joker is Hamill's best performance, but Mask of the Phantasm is Kevin Conroy's best performance. The scene where Bruce is pleading to his parents at the cemetery is one of the most powerful scenes I've ever watched. This movie shows us a time when the door to a life without being Batman was still ajar for Bruce. With the love of his life left, or when the love of his life left him, the door closed forever. The film is just extraordinary. Yeah, well, mine's not going to be very hard, Jordan, because it's exactly the same as George List. <laughs> Mystery of the Batwoman, Sub-Zero, and then Return of the Joker and Phantasm. But Return of the Joker is right underneath Phantasm. Return of the Joker is really, really good. But like you said, Phantasm is just amazing. And like I said earlier, it's a masterpiece. So that's always going to be the number one spot for all the points you just mentioned here. So I completely agree with your list. So what was your, how was your animated list go, well, Dane? I imagine uh, it's pretty similar. <laughs> uh, for me, four is definitely Batwoman. Three. Uh, you know, just because Jordan brought it up, I'm, I'm going to say Sub-Zero, and I just remembered that movie. I keep on forgetting uh, about that movie for some reason. Um, two is definitely Return of the Joker, and number one, Tim, can you guess it? Jeez. Hmm. Well, I think you got it all, Dane. There's no other movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not another movie. But of course, it's Mask of the Phantasm. Yep, so we're all all three of us in our agreement on the yeah. rankings of the DCAU <laughs> movies, so, which is great. And I've heard, too, that I think at the panel they're looking into getting Sub-Zero next to be remastered for Blu-ray. Yeah. So that would be great to have all these on Blu-ray. And Mystery of the Batwoman came out earlier. Have yet to get that one. I still should, though. Okay. And Return of the Joker I do have on Blu-ray, which looks good. So that's it for Jordan's email. As always, thanks again, Jordan, for sharing your thoughts with us on the goings-on of the DC Universe and your Smallville rewatch, and look forward to hearing what you think about all the stuff uh, from Comic-Con and where you're at in Smallville for your next email. So, thanks as always. And with that, we can go ahead and get into our comic book review section. And for this episode, we're going to be reviewing Detective Comics number 961, Batman 27, and All-Star Batman number 12. And as always, we got to throw out the spoiler warning here because we'll be talking about everything that's going on in the comics with no holds barred. So, spoiler warning is out there. And for our rating scale, Dane, what do you think it should be? Um, yeah, I don't know. I know, I was trying to think of some unique, funny stuff that we talked about in this episode, but none's coming to mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about uh, podcasts that we couldn't do? <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. Something yeah. to that phrase podcast that tim and dane missed yeah or miss yeah <laughs> okay so first up is detective comics number 961 and this one i'm gonna go straight to the last page because it was my favorite part of the issue <laughs> the Azbat suit is back <laughs> the yeah we got james tinian teased it i believe a few weeks ago before this issue came out and we didn't get a chance to talk about it because we didn't record our episode <laughs> two weeks ago, but it was finally unveiled in this issue, and I am glad it's back. I know it gets joked on a little bit for being too, you know, extreme and out there, but I've always liked the Asbat suit. I have a soft spot for it, so it's cool that it's making its way back into comics in a way that I think that should be pretty cool because how this issue plays out, uh, the 
that other robot suit that's being controlled by an AI of the Order of St. Dumas is wreaking havoc on Luke and his other potential Batwing suits that he um, was planning to use. And he, while he was trying to work with Jean-Paul Valley to get him a new suit without uh, relying on you know the system in his brain being linked to his Azrael suit, he wanted something different to help him through that. And so what he did was create a program that, you know, being based, like the AI is going to be based on the design of a single, like the actions of a single human. And, you know, guess who that's human's going to be? Batman. And then that's the design of the Asbat suit. So John Paul's able to wear that as his new, you know, uh, costume for Azrael, even though it does look like the classic Asbat suit. I'm all down for that. So hopefully that's the case and will just be a temporary thing. I'm hoping that's his new suit. But for the rest of the issue, um, we get another flashback sequence as it begins with uh, Zatanna and Bruce back in the early days when he's training with them. But she's kind of showing more of that the magic they use is not just all illusions, but actual magic. And she's showing Bruce this um, sphere called the Gnosis Sphere, which is able to pretty much change reality or do anything you want with it. And so uh, Zatara stumbles in upon them, though, when he catches them. And Bruce wasn't supposed to find out about that Gnosis Stone. And this is where Zatara takes away some of Bruce's memory of ever knowing about that and being shown that. And so the last issue kind of hinted that as well, where, you know, Bruce knows there's some memories that he needs to get back that Rachel Gould teased with him in the last arc. And even in that flashback sequence, as Bruce is leaving, uh, Zatara was meeting with someone and that person was Rachel Gould. And of course, Bruce didn't know who he was yet. So looks looks like Rachel is going to play into the story eventually down the line. And then this issue had a lot of cool acting stuff, as I mentioned, that suit that's being controlled by the system. And in John Paul Valley, he's kind of he's losing. He's going crazy. He's attacking uh, the other members of the bat team as well, because the system in his suit is causing them, you know, to lose control, like the human side of him. And we get a glimpse aside of what's going on at Jean Paul's mind right now, uh, where the system kind of personifies itself as this little kid uh, called uh, Askelion. And he's pretty much telling Azrael to, you know, embrace it. Like, humanity's weak and all that. You need to be, you know, Azrael, the angel of vengeance and all that. It kind of reminded me, uh, I, I know you haven't played Mass Effect, Dean, but at the end of Mass Effect 3, the thing you're trying to create called the Catalyst to defeat the aliens, the Reapers, there's this moment where you complete it, and then there's this, it takes the personification of a little kid that <laughs> tells you the true meaning of what's going on in the galaxy and the Reapers. It's kind of had that feel to it where the system manifests itself as this little kid and telling Jean-Paul Valley what he is and what he needs to do. It had that reminded me of that. But like I said, there were some cool action sequences between Batwoman and Orphan taking on um, Azrael, even though he's not, you know, it's not Jean-Paul Valley in control. But this great panel layout and action sequences of Orphan and Batwoman taking down um, the Azrael and just really cool ways of this, how the layouts were done and the techniques they were using to take it out I thought was cool. But uh, Batman and Zatanna make their way uh, to help them out to stop uh, Azrael, even though he's not in control. And this is where Zatanna is able to put him under with uh, using her magic so to stop them from taking out everybody. And that's where we get the reveal of that Luke Fox was making this new Asbat suit for John Paul Valley, so he doesn't have to rely on the system anymore. And meanwhile, Clayface is trying to protect that other member, that little gnome creature from the Order of St. Dumas, and uh, he's been looking out the window of the Belfry, and there's tons of Luke's Batwing costumes being controlled by that by the system AI 
by Escalion. And so it looks like he's going to run into some trouble. But yeah, the issue ends with that last page of the Asbat suit, which is the best part of the issue. I just love seeing it again. So I'm going to give this one three out of five episodes that Tim and Dane weren't able to record. All right, so we're going to move on to Batman number 27, which is not technically part three of the War of Jokes and Riddles, but as it says on the cover, an interlude. And as I mentioned while reading Jordan's email, I haven't been the biggest fan of this arc just yet. It just feels it's a lot of, it's really slow going. We're not seeing the war of the Jokes and Riddles. I want to see more of that between the different villains taking sides. It's just really like glossed over and you just kind of have to accept that it's happening but i want to be shown that it's happening so i haven't been the biggest fan of this arc so far but i will say this interlude was really good (laughs) i really enjoyed this so far it's the best out of the wars of jokes and riddles arc that we got and it was unexpected too because it focuses on the origin of kite man and uh, he's always a villain one of those joke villains you just laugh at his origin story I thought was really good here. And I wasn't expecting it to be him, which I probably should have saw it coming. But I guess I just didn't know we were getting a story about Kite Man, but it ended up being really good. It starts off with this guy named Charlie who's at a bar, and we see Batman walk in, and he just grabs him, and he tells him, you know, you're going to get me a way to contact the Joker. I know you've dealt with him before, and you're going to help me find him. So a lot of the story deals with, like, this guy Charlie being pulled back and forth between different aspects of this war between batman joker and the riddler so when batman first gets him he tries contacting deadshot and to get the contact information for the joker and he does but it turns out it was this uh you know an untraceable useless number so batman wants him to meet with the joker directly so before that we see this moment where he uh with his son and the son's flying a kite and this should have been a dead giveaway to me right away but (laughs) it wasn't but it made for a nice impact later and, you know, his son uses a curse word in front of him and he says, you know, you shouldn't say that word. You know, my your grandma told me if you say that word, then you're going to end up going to that place. And, you know, just trying to teach his son, even though he's probably not the best father dealing with criminals, he's still trying to teach him, you know, to be a good kid. And, you know, how he can't be there for me, how he said he's not going to be able to uh, go to his party because, you know, he's dealing with all this stuff between Batman, the Joker and the Riddler. But before he's able to meet with the Joker, he gets uh, he walks out of a diner and Clayface uh, sneaks up behind him as uh, someone else, but then captures him and he brings him to the Riddler. And the Riddler says, "Oh, I hear, you know, you're setting up a meeting with the Joker, but you know, if you, before you do, let me just make sure I have this information correct." And he starts reading off, you know, the name of his mother, where she lives, his wife, his daughter, and so he's pretty much threatening Charlie here that he's, you're going to have to do what I tell you to, or else your family's going to get it. And we see uh, Charlie at the bar again. Then Batman comes in to get him. And so, like, all three of them are aware of this meeting. And it turns into this big fiasco. And, see, this is what I'm talking about, my complaints of this arc so far. Uh, We know there's going to be this big meeting. And all these villains are going to be there showing who they're supporting. But it's just one big splash page. And while it's a cool splash page of seeing Batman fighting the Riddler, you see Grundy, Scarecrow, Croc, and Joker is dragging Charlie away. But would be nice to see more of this it's just quickly glossed over as this quick little sequence so that's been the case so far with every issue with the war of jokes and riddles and it's just disappointing so a joker takes uh charlie back they have this little conversation then charlie goes to meet batman again with his with his bombs packed on him and he's just gonna kill himself and batman was able to get his son 
away safely. He goes, um, you know, his son is safe. He just has a cold, but he'll be fine. And so Charlie just tells Batman, I'm sorry, I really am, but Joker made me. And he was going to detonate the bomb, but it doesn't go off. And he Charlie just doesn't get it. You know, he's just wondering, you know, okay, well, what's the point of all this? And then he gets the phone call. And then it turns out to be the Riddler. And the Riddler just gives him a riddle about kites. And on the page, it's showing a kite in the air and it's slowly falling down, slowly falling down. Then next we see Bat- Batman and Charlie. Charlie just grabbing his cape and just pleading with him. You know, he's telling him the Riddler knew his son. He knew I'd betray him before he even came to me. And he poisoned my son. There was a poison on the kite rope he was flying when I was with him. And I need to see my son. Where is he? So Batman takes him to the hospital and his son is dying. And it was a pretty heartwarming scene for Charlie seeing his son like this and his son saying, you know, like, like, sorry, dad, I did something bad. Was it, It's because I said that word. And, you know, Charlie's crying, but he's trying to comfort him. So, like, don't worry about that. You're fine. Everything's going to be fine. And, but it's too late. His son died because of the poison. And then Batman just swears to Charlie saying, I'll catch him. I'll swear. Like, I'll make him pay for what the Riddler did to your son. And he says there will be vengeance. And I like Charlie's reaction here. He's like saying this way, that way, just kind of showing all the ways he was pulled by these different people, the Joker, Batman, Riddler, and in the end it cost him his son. So then we see him cutting out this piece of cloth into the shape of a kite and kind of you hear this uh, monologue going on over it. It's like these newscasters broadcasting about you know updates on what's going on between the battle between Joker and Riddler. And they're saying, well, if you want the Joker eliminated, you got to take sides with the Riddler. If you want the Riddler eliminated, you got to take sides with the Joker. And the next page, we see Charlie knocking on Joker's door, and Joker just answers, saying, "Is this a joke?" And he just replies, "Kite Man in full Kite Man costume." And so he's taking sides with the Joker to take down the Riddler. So I thought it was a nice, well-told story about an origin story for Kite Man, which, you know, if you would have told me early on, I wouldn't expect much from. But it turned to be a pretty compelling one. So I really like this issue. And hopefully just the war and the actual story of itself between Riddler and Joker picks up instead of just being glanced over with one splash page. So we actually see this stuff happen. But this was a good one. So I'm going to give it 3.5 out of 5 episodes that Tim and Dane missed. And then we get to All-Star Batman number 12, which is currently my favorite Batman story going on in comics right now. The first ally is this really, a really cool Alfred story that's connecting to the current situation that Batman is in and just getting more insight into Alfred's past is always cool. So this one picks up where the last one left off where Alfred got shot in the head, but it, we know it didn't kill him. We wakes up in a dungeon and then Batman's trapped in Tiger Shark's uh, underwater uh, or on his boat, which is sinking. And he needs to get out. And he, he figures out a way. There's some torpedoes that are in the ship. And he puts these cables up to it. But he's telling Alfred the only way to activate him is like through sound. But we can't get any sound through here. So through my comm, I'm going to need you to scream as loud as you can. And the torpedoes will react to that. Shoot out and carry the cables to bring the ship back up. So Alfred just lets out this big loud scream in Batman's earpiece. And it did his job. The torpedoes able took the ship from sinking and... Batman was able to get out of there and Alfred was able to bring him back. And over the course of uh, this issue, the monologue is about Alfred. Of course, how the first, has it been in the first two uh, parts of this arc as well? Alfred's telling the story. But this is when he's talking about how um, he loved pirate stories and the great adventurers that the lead characters would take. And it's correlating nicely with what Batman is going to, trying to get out of that sinking ship. 
there was this one moment too where Batman comes out and he's being rescued by mermaids and it was like, okay, where's this going? But you know, I think it was just kind of like a nice uh, uh, allegory to Alfred telling about how he liked pirate stories and how this is something that would be out of the stories of the pirate character being rescued from a sinking ship by mermaids. But in fact, it was Alfred who really rescued him. But the best part of this issue are the flashbacks of Alfred's uh, early days. And we find out he's being taken into this dungeon uh, by that guy, Briar, um, who's telling him, you know, you're not here to be captured. You're pretty much being recruited. He tells him about, you know, how in London uh, there's this, to protect the kingdom, there was this uh, secret organization, you know, it had its normal warriors, it had its knights, it had its soldiers. But even in those old days, there was like need of a special knight. I felt this was a nod to the Dark Knight movie here because he goes, um, we need a Dark Knight, an outsider, an enemy of the crown, a traitor, someone hated by everyone, but secretly was in league with the kingdom, you know, who would do what they said for the greater good. You know, kind of like how Batman sacrificed his reputation at the end of the Dark Knight to be what Gotham needed him to be, even though everyone would hate him for it. So I thought that was a kind of a nice parallel there and how Alfred was involved with this uh, secret organization. At first, he doesn't want to be a part of it, but uh, Briar, you know, kind of tells him how what's left for him out there, how he, you know, kind of resents his dad for being a butler for the Wayne family and how, you know, you're kind of you could be meant for something more than that. And he convinces him to stay to be a part of the secret organization and how Briar tells him that uh, you won't do it alone. I'll be your first and last ally. And so he'll be there to be his mentor. So kind of like, you know, not technically Alfred's Batman story, but I like how he does have a little history of being part of something that is secretive and doing something for a greater good that not everyone will know about. So I like how it's similar, but yet different, just for unique for Alfred. So Alfred's able to bring Bruce back, gets him uh, back on his feet. But there's some great monologue here when uh, Alfred is working on or operating on Batman. He was telling him about, you know, how uh, every father, you know, every scar on a child is uh, important to a father. He remembers the first time uh, he patched up one of Bruce's early scars as a kid. And he goes, it feels like uh, each scar feels like a familiar mark. You know, some can view it as a failure to what they do as they got hurt and they weren't able to do their job. Right. And, and he says, like, as a parent, you know, your child's scar better than anyone else does. But the moment I really liked it was dialogue where he says there is pride in these scars because it means that he survived and, you know, Alfred's been there to patch up those scars and, you know, that his son survived even with some of those failures and mistakes. He has survived and that's the most important thing and those scars are a reminder of his survival. So just some great stuff about Alfred being the father figure for Batman, which has been a nice aspect of this arc so far, which I really, really love. So Alfred tells uh, Batman, you know, or Bruce tells Alfred that he got what he was after. He grabbed the Genesis engine uh, before the ship went down on the blast. But then Alfred tells him to let it go. We need to go home to Gotham. Like, this is over. We got what we came for. Because he knows who's really behind this. And he just tells him, we're going home. <laughs> like, that's all there is to it. And Bruce has asked him, what's it? Like, what is it, Alfred? Then he tells him about the Nemesis program, which, you know, we got the flashback of, of what that system he was a part of. And he goes, you know, talks about the story, how he was recruited and how he was going to be doing training, how it said it would last a year, and how he was that costume or that armored knight character who was in the previous issue of this, which I thought looked awesome. Alfred tells him, that's what I was training for, and that's what I you know, helped build. So that whole thing about being the Dark Knight, 
uh, uh, Briar was telling Alfred in the past it was to be that character who Bruce is fighting now. So Alfred kind of hinted that he helped build it and train to be him, but it doesn't seem like he actually got to be him. So I'll be curious to see if Alfred did don that armor or not. I'm kind of hope he doesn't because, like I said before, I like how there's similarities to him being like trained for something like Batman did, but not quite the same. And to be really different, I and not have it be exactly like Batman, where he suited up in a suit of armor and fought crime too. Uh, have it be some familiarities, but not exactly the same. Where you know he was a proto Batman in his own day. Just have it be something else. So hopefully it won't go on that route. But then the issue ends with uh, Batman being betrayed by Penguin and Black Mask. Go figure. We know they helped him out in the last issue, but it turns out. They were working with Tommy Elliot all along because they knew Bruce would be able to get the Genesis engine for them. And this would be a much easier way to obtain it than they would. So uh, Tommy Elliot uh, comes out of you know being captured from Bruce and Alfred. He knocks Batman out and Penguin and Black Mass are shooting <laughs> their hideout with machine guns from a helicopter. And then uh, uh, Hush joins them uh, with the Genesis engine. So things aren't looking good for Batman and Alfred here. So they got to deal with Penguin, Hush, and Black Mask, not to mention um, Alfred's old mentor, Briar, and uh, this uh, Knight character. So I'm really intrigued with the story. I love the flashback stuff with Alfred, how there is some parallels between him and Bruce. But at the same time, uh, comparing it to Bruce now and showing how he is his father figure. And, you know, just like he had his ally, he'll always continue to be Bruce's ally. And we know that relationship's not going <laughs> to look like... Uh, go sour like his relationship with Briar did since they're kind of enemies or at least it's hinted at they are now so I'm interested to see where this all goes so I really enjoy the story arc great mystery to it great insight to Alfred's past and just looking forward to more so I'll give this one four out of five episodes that Tim and Dane missed and with that that's going to wrap up our latest episode so as always I'll throw it to you Dane for the outro all right just go over to the batmanuniverse.net Facebook.com slash Batman Universe, Twitter handles at Batman Universe, uh, Tim's Twitter handles at TimG311, since you hosted. <laughs> Thanks. My Twitter handles at Dane Says Banana. Um, you find us on iTunes, as well as all the other Batman Universe um, podcasts. Um, and you can email the show at batfanswithoutpants at gmail.com. So, with that, like we say at the end of every single episode, Tim. What we love say? each and every one of you with all of our bad hearts. With all of our bad, with all of our bad hearts. So with that, see you guys next time. See you next time, everybody. You said you'd come. Now let's hope you're not too late.